APG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 317. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 7107 in the Hilton Recording Studios in Omaha, Nebraska. Today's episode, the latest aviation news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, 100 years. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 317 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff a captain for a U.S. legacy carrier, and joining me today from her beautiful lakeside cottage in Doctor. South Doctor. Carolina. Doctor. 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 Marathon runner. Doctor. Doctor. A IPA connoisseur, strength training junkie, commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Stephanie Plummer. Hello, hello. It's a lovely Thursday afternoon here in South Carolina. Definitely a beautiful day. Probably should be outside, but I love you guys, so here I am. I've opened up all the windows, so if you hear the the birds in the background and some wind, that's just part of the ambiance today. We love you, too. Also joining us from his sprawling country estate in... The southwest of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF, fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick Anderson. Hi there, Jeff. Hello, Steph. And there's some, Jeff, I had to tell you, there's some bloke sitting beside you. I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> okay. Uh, hi, everybody. Yes, I am indeed uh, near London in uh, my little two up, two down. And uh, great to be back on the show again. Awesome. And last, but certainly not least, sitting right here beside me in our hotel studio, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, soon to be Captain Dana Colton. Well, hello, the APG community. Jeff and I are indeed sitting next to each other. We've been... Yeah, get your hand off my... Well, you know what? We have been doing coupled approaches this, these last two days. You know, if you know what a coupled approach is... is it's not a couple's approach. It's a, a coupled, coupled approach. You're, yes. you, no, no, no like we, we both have our hands on the throttle <laughs> yeah. holding no. hands. So oh. it's just so romantic. But no, great to be here with the uh, flying with Captain Jeff, which is... We, I was commenting that uh, it's uh, pretty amazing because I think a lot of the people in the community would love to be sitting here with Captain Jeff flying with them. So it's truly an honor to be here with the podcast and also sitting here right next to him looking at him with well, my sunglasses on because I, I look like a captain there. I, I told you 
before we started recording, there were certain things that we weren't going to talk about. Uh, and you've already blown that. No. Oh, well. We haven't gone, we haven't talked about all the things yet. <laughs> anyway. Yes, we're together. Uh, this is a, one of the last trips that you have as a first officer. That's correct. Well, you have like three or four more to go I next have month. four more. That's okay. it. And uh, so Dana saw this trip in the pot of open trips and he jumped all over it. And uh, so I'm gl- so glad he did because we're ha- just having a blast. And we'll talk about that probably a little bit uh, sure. later. We will. Anyway, so let's start with Dr. Steph. What has what yeah. been going on with you? What, what are you up to? Uh, when did we talk last? It was sometime last week, wasn't it? Like, it was like, uh, a week I don't know, Wednesday, what day Thursday, was it? It wasn't over the weekend, definitely. So I can tell you what I did over the weekend. Yeah. So last minute, last week on Friday, I woke up in the morning and I decided, um, I think I've talked a little bit about how my foot has been bothering me a little bit with some of my running and you know, I broke my finger and all that good stuff, but back to feeling 100% or pretty close to and decided to... Uh, join my friend that I do all my marathon running with, one of my uh, former uh, med school roommates uh, up in Boston to run the first 21 miles of the Boston Marathon course last Saturday. So did that just kind of spur of the moment, went up there, uh, had a really great 22 hours in Boston <laughs> and beautiful day for running. It was a really nice long training run. Hang on a Steph, that's not even a mile an hour. Uh, well, I mean, 20, so 22 was, hours to do 20 miles. Come no, on. I ran the go back up. I was in Boston. It's kind of slow, hours. actually, when you think yeah. about it. During that time, I navigated public transportation out to Hopkinton because <laughs> that's where the Boston Marathon course starts. So it's not actually in Hopkinton. 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 No, I can't. My, my Boston Hopkinton. accent is broken permanently. Okay. So, sorry. You'll just have to imagine, or I'll get Dana. I'll just stop and Dana can interrupt. Thank you. I went there, um, (laughs) got in about, I don't know, (laughs) 11 o'clock at night and slept for a few hours, woke up at about seven o'clock in the morning and joined my friend and we went out to the course and there were probably 3000 people out there that day running the course, um, bigger than some marathons I've actually participated in. And it was just, just a training run. Nice day, 40 degrees, some, uh, uh, mostly cloudy, a little bit of uh, snow showers later in the day, but uh, not anything terrible. Nice weather for running. So. Did, did you end up great. on Heartbreak Hill? I finished uh, at the very top of Heartbreak Hill. That's no, that's Heartbreak Hill. Heartbreak Hill. Hot. Hot. Heart, Hot. Heartbreak Hill. <laughs> is your There's an R in that word. Come on. Heart, it's Heartbreak. Heartbreak. There's an R in that word. Yeah, I, I'm saying the R, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yes, please. Just enough time to... Um, collect all my stuff again, get a shower, go back into the city. Uh, had a really nice Italian uh, carb loading meal at, in I forget what the name of the restaurant was, in the North End, and then went back to the airport and came home. So, little whirlwind trip, but it was a lot of fun. Brilliant. Excellent. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Nick. Heartbreak. Sorry. Me, ha, sir. Ha. Me. Is it me? My <laughs> turn. Yes. Uh, let me think. Uh, we, when did we do the show? We did it actually it was Wednesday, a week ago. Wednesday. Wait a minute. Right. Yeah. It I'm was. glad I'm not the only one that can't remember these things. What Tomorrow. day is today? It was like a little over a week ago, a week ago, yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I had a simulator to go for, uh, which I think I mentioned. It was a really horrible time. Like we were going to be in the box at 11 o'clock at night. Wouldn't going to get out till 3 and 3 a.m. Anyway, I girded my loins, studded away, got into my car, drove to the, uh, the simulator building, and I'm sitting there looking at my watch going, well, I'm here. Where's my first officer? Now, usually the trainers are... Um, you know, they arrive smack on time because they've got no preparation. They don't have to worry about being late. If they're late, you know, they can usually make it up. But if one of the, if one of the subjects is late, oh my God, you, you'll be marked down. And, uh, so I sat there, no FO. And then, uh, my instructor pitched up and, uh, he said, oh, hi, Nick, well, where's your first officer? I said, well, I don't know. Uh, so he picked up his, did you know phone. it was your responsibility to bring the, your own first officer? <laughs> <laughs> bring your first officer. Well, if I could have found one, actually somebody said, Hey, there's bound to be a bunch of 500 hour easy jet first officer kicking out. Just grab one. Of those. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, uh, I hunted around and, uh, couldn't find him. Uh, we looked under the doors and, uh, phoned the company and he was uh, on the schedule, uh, for the simulator, but they hadn't put it on his roster. So, I mean, we don't look, normally look at the piece of paper of the simulator unless you've got one rostered to find just to find out who you're with. So he had no, and he was at home. Oh, actually, he's fast asleep, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so they so, didn't bother um, telling him. No. So nice. I turned around and uh, drove home again, and which meant I got a reasonable night's sleep, uh, which was kind of nice because. Uh, um, then we had a uh, a good weekend. Um, I've uh, had my car fixed because I had a remember that light that came on uh, when I was trying to get to the talk at uh, St Benedict's. Mm-hmm. Um, big shout out for them, of course, uh, St Benedict Benedict's School Aviation Group. I'll be there uh, next month. Um, I eventually got that fixed. Cost me three hundred and seventy five pounds. Ouch. Um, and uh, then I went up to London on the train to meet with uh, Sir Glenn Torpy, uh, ex-Chief uh, of the Air Staff of the Royal Air Force. And what a lovely guy. We're all friends, I know, but I hadn't seen him for years. Um, and uh, he was very kind, organized lunch for us. And I sat down with him and interviewed him for a good hour and a half. Uh, we're getting a little, a little bit of uh, him just at the end of today's plane tale, but I'm doing... Uh, it'll probably break down to about three, I think, three proper plain tales uh, about him and his exploits as a scud hunter in uh, the first Gulf War. Uh, absolutely brilliant stuff. I, I can't wait to, to get it all together and make a story out of that. I can't wait uh, to hear the first episode or installment of that today. Uh, no, oh, wait, no, you're not. Oh, that's different. right. It's a different one. Never mind. Yeah. I asked him to put his chief of the air staff hat on and just comment on the subject of today's oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, I'm going to do three proper with uh, him telling about his uh, time on the, mainly on the tornado um, to come. Most excellent. Most excellent. Look forward to that. Okay. Well, since the last episode, Wednesday, that was just, I would had just come home from a three day trip And then the next morning, I think I mentioned it on the last show that I was heading out to California for personal things, legal issues uh, going on. I'm the trustee of the uh, trust that my mom and my stepfather uh, created many, many years ago. And just 
Well, I'm not going to say that much about it, except that it's not a lot of fun and things have been challenged. And now we're uh, involved in a, a legal process and courts and that kind of thing. And it's just turns my stomach just to think about it. But uh, so when I was out there, went to a hearing and I thought I would be able to, you know, get back on an airplane, fly back out and be home for the weekend. And thank you. Dan is offering me his whatever's left of his bourbon on the rocks. But uh, that's OK. Uh, but then uh, at the last minute there at the hearing, they said, yeah, you need to sell the house and do all that. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't have a lot of time. So I had to find a real estate agent and do all the necessary paperwork and everything else to uh, get the house listed for sale and everything else. So I was very, very busy and very, very happy to finally uh, head home on Sunday, uh, jump seated on a Airbus A321. And then um, I was kind of short for the month as far as time because I had to drop a trip to make it out to California. So I ended up picking up a two day and I really feel bad. I'd like to apologize. I normally am pretty good about getting these shows edited and posted within a, what, two, three days or so of our recording date. And, you know, we recorded on a Wednesday and it was Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And I kept thinking, well, I should have time to do it while I'm out in California or maybe like on the airplane on the way out. But I had to ride the jump seat on the way out, too. And I couldn't I couldn't pull the laptop out uh, in the cockpit. You know, that wouldn't be cool or legal for my company. So I uh, thought, well, I'll just wait until I'm in a hotel room and or at the whatever. And I never got around to it. I just didn't have time. And so finally got the thing um, edited and published Monday night. So I do apologize for it taking so long this last time. I promise I'll try to get it out there a little bit more quickly in the in the future. So I did an overnight, got back home on Tuesday afternoon, and then took all the dirty stuff out of the suitcase and then put on put in uh, clean stuff and repacked everything and headed out uh, yesterday morning for this trip which I was really looking forward to because I knew that Dan and I were going to be flying together and it's a pretty good trip it's you know one leg down to Panama City we were thinking Panama City Beach uh, and then uh, a nice long layover down there on the beach uh, then two legs to Omaha today and then three legs tomorrow however <laughs> Dan and I were we're in the van, uh, having been picked up from the uh, Emerald Coast Panama City Airport, the uh, Panama City Airport, and the van driver exiting the airport started turning left, and I immediately sensed something was terribly wrong. Home? Yeah, because... <laughs> the beach is the other direction. Yeah, the, uh, the beach uh, hotel goes to the right, and we were heading to the left, and we're going, where are you going? Oh, no. And I looked at my schedule on my phone and i noticed oh dana you're not gonna believe this we're not at the beach i asked the driver i said are we going to the beach because oh no we're, we're going to the the non-beach location i went oh <laughs> anyway uh it, it worked out we still uh were able to uh get a ride from the hotel staff to uh, a restaurant closer to the beach for a wonderful seafood dinner last night so and we had them pick us up back up so it worked out could have been better but you know, no ocean breeze for us, right? Yeah, but I saw plenty of sand. Yeah, lots of sand. At, at the construction site around the corner. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, there's that. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, it was still a nice long layover, and it was a nice easy day. You have to admit that. It was like a 39-minute flight from Atlanta to 
Panama City. And that was it. That's all we had to do yesterday. Slave driver made me do everything, too. Yeah. No, he asked me if he could do everything. And I said, well, sure. <laughs> you, you know, twist my arm. Yeah. But we had a good time uh, regardless. And uh, let's see. What else was I going to say about that? Anything? Um, go ahead. I was going to say, we uh, they put us at a hotel that was really close to West Marine, which forced me to go ahead and have to go buy a little treat for the new APGB, the airline pilot guy boat. So oh, the I B. bought, okay. uh, yeah, um, which a future meetup HMS will happen. HMS APG. Yep. A- <laughs> no. USS APG. USS. USS. Yeah. Hey. So, uh, Your boat yeah. can be the HMS something or other, but... <laughs> I'll let you finish because I I have a few things to say. Okay. Okay. I'll let you finish. All right. Uh, So let's see. What was I going to say? So I I mentioned that I jump seated on the uh, Airbus, Airbus 321 uh, from LA to uh, Atlanta. And how'd you get to LA though? I was on a triple seven on, on the way out. (laughs) These guys, I can't really say much, but it was like flying with two grandpas. Literally. And one of the guys. Did they leave the left blinker on for like (laughs) 500 miles? I was sitting there the whole time going, I hope I'm not acting like this. Because if I am, I'm going to tell my co-pilot to slap me around or tell me to retire. Anyway. um, Retire. (laughs) Shut up. And uh, so when we were flying out of Atlanta, the it was the first officer's leg. And so he was hand flying this 777. 777 is a fly by wire airplane. And, you know, we remember the conversation we've been having in the last few episodes about fly by wire. And I thought that, um, you know, the, the fact that everything's running through computers and, you know, it probably is making somebody that may not have really, you know, stellar flying skills look really, really good. I have changed my opinion on that. <laughs> Uh, have you now? Yes, I have. Clearly, this guy, it, it, the computers didn't help. The fly-by-wire system did not help at all. And I'm thinking, wow, I have egg on my face because I was completely wrong about my supposition that the fly-by-wire computer system and everything else would kind of smooth everything out and make a maybe an average pilot seem like a super way above average pilot. Did you consider that maybe he's not an average pilot? Yeah, maybe below average. I don't know, you know, but no, I, sh- I shouldn't be insinuating. Yeah, I, I really don't want to be too hard on no, the no, 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 no. guy, I'm but curious. clearly, um, my, what the idea that I had in my head about fly by wire systems was wrong. Gotcha. So that was a anecdotal empirical evidence on my part that I witnessed. So I take everything back. It doesn't matter whether it's a fly by wire system or it's not a fly by wire system going through computers or not going through computers. If you're not a smooth pilot on the controls, you're not going to be a smooth pilot. I mean, you're just not going to experience smoothness uh, as a passenger. So I'll just leave it at that. And the other thing I wanted to say, and it it doesn't really pay me to say it because I love all airplanes. I haven't had the opportunity to fly fly the Airbus uh, cockpit, the platform. But uh, I have to say, this is a pretty new airplane. I think it was uh, September of... 2016 when we accepted delivery on this 321 so a year and a half old 
And so it was, you know, it, it didn't have that new airplane smell still, but it was still, you could tell it was a reasonably new airplane because the airplanes that we're flying are what, 25 years old or something like that. Yeah, at least. So <laughs> like all the trim is hanging off, <laughs> falling apart. It's pretty, pretty bad up there. But anyway, um, I thought, you know, this is, this is pretty nice. And I was starting to almost think like, hmm, I got a little over five years to go. I mean, this is an option for me, maybe. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, I don't know. I'm still thinking I'll, I'll stay on the 88 for a, a bit longer and see how things pan out. But we were having a discussion earlier about, you know, how the, how the, uh, the, the way they're going to use the mad dogs in the next several years before they're completely retired is going to be not, um, optimum, you know, in other words, flying a lot of short legs and probably multiple legs per day. Just the kind of flying that I really don't want. I mean, I don't mind short legs. I just don't want to do five or six in a day. So uh, we'll see. Anyway, yeah, so much. Yeah, working <laughs> Josie, all day is, is terrible. <laughs> Josie says, yeah, so much for my auto-tune analogy. <laughs> I know. I, I was right with, there with you, uh, Josine, but um, nah, it's that, that analogy does not work in this case, apparently. So, auto-tune would not fix my singing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can support that. I can support the <laughs> destruction of all those theories. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so it might it might fix that GPUs there. No, no, it doesn't need any fixing. It's perfect the way it is. Oh, is it fixed? Is it? Is okay. it all fixed? Yeah. It's all fixed. Good. So anyway, um, just wanted to say that you know I, I was kind of, I was impressed with the uh, the uh, the way the airplane flew and uh, the the cockpit arrangement and all that kind of stuff. So you know. Um, that's all I want to say about that. Um, and uh, let's see, Plane Tales. Uh, we've been working on that on the uh, APG website for quite some time. And I can say now officially, yay, noisemakers, applause, all that kind of stuff. It's officially now um, released on the website. Uh, there's a menu item at the top menu Ray. bar, unless you're listening or you're on a smartphone device or whatever, then you just look. One of the options, one of the menu options is the old pilot's plane tales. Now it's not completely 100% finished, uh, but most of the episodes are on there and I just have a little bit more work to do to upload those, uh, those audio files to the server. And then Nick will do his magic and put in some pictures and that kind of thing. And then it will be complete. And then we'll be uh, current every episode that we, uh, that we publish of the regular APG show. Along with that, I'll be publishing the standalone uh, Plain Tales file. So you'll be able to also subscribe to it in your favorite podcast subscription client. And uh, so if you just want to listen to Nick's wonderful Plain Tales and not the rest of us and all the other wonderful things that we do, I'll be sad to hear that. But, you know, it'll be available for you if you want. So there's they won't that. ever want to do that. Right, well, you know, some of these people, they're not, they're not nice people, Nick. Not all of them. <laughs> I mean, perhaps if they've got like got to, got to go to the loo, they they might go. Well, I'll do a quick plane tale on the loo, rather than a three hours because that is would not be an appropriate be a, place for it. Yeah, way. that's exactly right. That's that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so we have we have that finally accomplished almost. 
completely. And thank you very much, Jeff. A lot of hard work putting all that up, much harder than I think uh, we all thought it was going to be. Yeah, well, you know, I, when I mentioned uh, doing that, I just it just didn't dawn on me how, how many of those things you've done. Small <laughs> side project. Be I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Take care of. Yeah. You have a lot. I mean, and, and, and of course, that means that it's an incredible amount of work that you've done over time, week after week after week. So uh, thank you, Captain Nick, for, for putting in all that hard work. Labor of love. Well, yes, I understand that. All right, good. Um, and I think that that was about all I was going to say. So now I'll shut up and let Dana talk again. I have nothing to say now. Okay. You said, no, I'm kidding. Uh, so my Let's week. Move on. Move no. on. Okay. Here we go. Uh, yeah, my week, uh, I had the recurrent training. And for anybody that wants to listen, I'm going to um, plug Patreon here because we've been doing more. Of the crew logs, so I have a whole bunch of uh, information on what happened in training this past week on the crew log. Uh, so I, I would recommend joining Patreon so that if you want to listen to some of the stuff that uh, Nick puts out, myself, Steph, um, Jeff, yeah, yeah, this guy over here. Okay, sure. So uh, you had the training, recurrent training went well. No debrief items on the second day, which is more or less a check ride. So that uh, that was very nice. Um, and then, oh, before that, this past weekend, my in-laws drove up from Stewart, Florida and driving through the Atlanta metropolitan area on the way home to the Boston area. And we had, uh, they had no clue that we had bought the USS APGB. <laughs> and so it was, uh, you don't really have to call it that, but that's kind of fun. It is show. kind of fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> for, at least for the show. I don't know what the name's going to be yet. Yeah. But uh, so uh, we completely surprised them. They had no idea we had the boat. And so we took them out for an evening cruise on Friday evening and had a very nice weekend with them. Uh, and then Monday uh, and Tuesday was my training. And Jeff had alluded to the fact that I picked this trip up in open time. I feel very fortunate that this ship came open because that enabled me to be able to fly with not only Captain Jeff, who is one of my all-time favorites to obviously uh, fly with, um, but one of my old-time friends, Tony, and a former co-guest host, I guess we could say, uh, um, Gary, uh, which is my also my riding buddy, he was also a captain at Acme. Uh, is he's gonna be my last ship I get to fly with, so uh, I was able to work it all out so that I could fly with three of my closest uh, friends uh, before I go to upgrade training on May 5th. And speaking of that, the what we have is called a conversion, um, that's when it becomes official that they are intending on putting me in that left seat uh that became official day before yesterday so um it's uh, looking like may 5th is officially the day i convert over to the left seat and go ahead or may 1st actually and then i'll be through training i sat on the 5th i believe it's a seven day course i haven't seen the schedule yet and by the end of may for sure i'll be done with oe and officially uh, wearing the fourth stripe and speaking of that very uh, emotional uh, day yesterday. I, I was both very excited and very sad because, uh, make a very long story short, is I know that this is the last time, uh, more than likely in my career, uh, unless uh, something happens down the line where I go backwards, um, that there's going to be the opportunity to fly with Jeff. So that, for me, is, is very sad, but also excited because it's my last 
uh, you know, I'm getting to fly with uh, Jeff one last time, which worked out fortunately. So yesterday uh, morning when we showed up for the trip, uh, sitting there and uh, he presented me with something that really... A bunch of things. A bunch of things, but I'm going to talk about the most important thing first. Oh, okay. Flowers? And that, flower, yes, he gave me flowers. Uh, you know, flowers? Black roses. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, he gave me my applets, my Captain applets. So... That was very moving for me. That's a very nice gesture on, on Jeff's part and um, really something I'll never forget the rest of my life and truly appreciative of of uh, him taking the time and, and recognizing that uh, that I'm going to be upgrading to captain. It was really just truly an honor. Um, also, he presented me with some other things that I you know, want to make sure I recognize because it's been a while since we've talked about it numerous times. We've actually showed them on the uh, video feed before and uh, just want to recognize some people for taking the time to make sure that uh, I got some uh, nice gifts and uh, Mike Cochran uh, thank you very much for that beautiful Yeti tum Yeti tumbler that was uh, presented to me by Captain Jeff and it has my name Captain Daner on it and I really uh, truly uh, also hit my heart as well I'm I had on some uh, Reese's peanut butter cups in there it too. did well it used to Oh, no, I'm <laughs> only did. kidding. No, I'm only kidding. They're still there. I'm trying to stay away from that stuff. Wow. I'm slowly going through them. Normally, in the old days, they would have been gone. Uh, Armando, that fantastic coin, I put that in my bag. I will keep that in my flight bag as a luck, good luck coin. Um, we've all, you know, all everybody else has their coin now. And then Tom, Tom Seagraves, Arthur Bryant's barbecue sauce. I am looking forward to using that. And speaking of cooking... The one of the most important things for the boat, I bought it this week. I bought a beautiful grill that's going to be on the boat so I can cook anytime we get out there on the boat. And yes, we will be having a meetup. Just a matter of me figuring out my schedule, and we will be doing a meetup this summer for sure on the boat here in Atlanta. So stay tuned for that one. And really, uh, really looking forward to uh, this next chapter of my life. It's going to be a challenging. The schedule is going to be challenging. Uh, Jeff is a, is an unbelievable mentor. He's allowed me to um, uh, sit in the left seat, not flying, of course, but uh, doing the uh, doing the pre flight flows, getting used to sitting over there, uh, used to believe it or not, just typing with my right hand on the F in the FMS. I'm so used to my left hand on the FMS, so typing with my uh, right hand and doing everything with my right hand and setting up the flight deck and, and getting everything done as I would uh, as a captain, and also allowing me to think about uh, things and analyze things like this morning coming out of. Uh, a Northwest Regional Airport. It was a uh, half mile in mist, and of course, the, one of the first things I thought about: we need takeoff alternate, and you know, what's the runway? You know, what what's the vi adequate visibility on this runway? Can we take off on this runway? Looking at the weather, looking at alternates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, allowing me to tr really mentor me, I guess, is the best word, and and uh, I'm very fortunate. So. So yeah, basically he's the captain and first officer on the trip, and I'm just kind of, you know, the captain of record. You are the captain of record and sitting in your appropriate seat. But I'm, you know, you know, thinking about when turn the seatbelt sign on and off, thinking about lights, thinking about you know what I should be looking at, fuel, 
uh, you know, what my alternate is. He's thinking a lot more about things than I ever do. Well, that's okay. (laughs) I might not so much after I go through OE, but I have to, you know, make sure I get through operations experience. So I'm looking forward to it. This great chapter and, and everybody in the community that's been so very supportive. Um, you know, I just look forward to sharing this with everybody as I go through and I will continue to, uh, and another reason why I joined a, you know, the, uh, Patreon is I will be posting uh, my experiences as I go through on the crew logs uh, as I have time to do so. So stay tuned. Excellent. So, hey, uh, I know that you were up in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about it yesterday. And I I said to, to Dana, well, you you recorded something for that, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, did we play that on the show? And he goes, I don't think so. <laughs> went, oh, sorry. Well, it kind of went that way. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to present <laughs> you, the... You're trying to make it look good, right? Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. trying to make yeah. myself not look so bad. <laughs> so, um, turns out that we didn't play this uh, meetup audio that you recorded with James. I don't think we did. Did we, well, Steph? I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. And truth be told, that following week you know, that... I... Probably well, I don't, I don't ask Steph. She hasn't. Sorry, I asked, I asked. I asked James, <laughs> I and uh, he about. said he said no, and he would know. Yeah, uh, he would know. Truth yes. be told, is that week after I recorded that, I was not on the show, so thus that's why it kind of got dropped. So yeah, it was, this yeah, it is was, for you, James. Yeah. So let's let's play this. Well, uh, hello there, APG. This is First Officer Dana, and I'm uh, uh, in Cleveland this afternoon. Uh, for those that may have been listening to podcast 314, I was uh, at the beginning of the podcast and received a call from uh, crew scheduling and said, hey, we have a, a white slip. I'm sure most of you have heard of. Uh, white slip is just a straight time, extra uh, time trip available and i said uh, well sure i'll take it i need to pick up a little extra flying and especially for that new boat so uh, anyways uh, picked up this trip up to cleveland and contacted uh, james that was on the uh, podcast in the in the chat room and said hey what are you doing for dinner tonight and he said well i'm actually free so Came up here, and here at the uh, restaurant called Taza, which is a uh, Middle Eastern, Lebanese type of uh, type of restaurant. And uh, the food here is fantastic. So if you are ever in the Cleveland area, not that I'm plugging anybody or anything, uh, come on over to this uh, fantastic restaurant if you like that type of food. And uh, James said he really enjoyed his uh, dinner. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand the mic over to James. And he can uh, go ahead and uh, give you his feedback from uh, today. And hopefully this is uh, we'll log. This is our crew log for the week. And maybe not. Maybe I'll do a separate crew log. We'll see. But anyways, uh, here's uh, James. Hello everyone, APGers, this is James Balch, a.k.a. Speedy, because the last time people might have remembered, I saw Jeff, I was so excited, and last summer I got a speeding ticket literally coming back to Columbus from Northeast Ohio. Again, it's a pleasure to have Dana back in um, Cleveland, I keep saying Columbus because I'm from Columbus, proud Buckeye. The other seat. The other seat. Um, Again, great dinner. It's just great to talk about the passion of aviation. No matter how many times we talk about it, 
I never take it for granted that people like Dan and Jeff and Nick and everyone else take their time and passion to talk about it. So, lovely, great topics talked about. Like, how many time, many years is the Mad Dog going to fly? Or better yet, what's Dana's favorite airport to fly into? And most importantly, what the journey Dana took to become a pilot and really what it says about him and his passion and how he cares about being a professional. And I never take that for granted in terms of what I do in finance, of everything that he does every day to make sure a flight comes safe. If businesses flew, ran like pilots flew planes, I think businesses would do a lot more successful. So I'll leave it to Dana. Again, love you all. APG is truly a family and one I'm very glad to be part of. Thank you. Well, very kind words there, James. Uh, certainly always a pleasure to see you and, and hang out and uh, talk aviation, which is actually the whole reason why all of us uh, at the APG do the show. Uh, really enjoy it and uh, enjoy the enthusiasm that you share with all of us by uh, by being involved and, and wanting to come out and uh, and have a nice dinner and talk, uh, talk shop. So uh, thank you for coming here and... Uh, Enjoy the, the comments that you just made. I'm sure uh, all of our followers will enjoy that as well. And for now, I'm just going to say uh, tally-ho. Talons, Douglas. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Awesome. Well, very nice, uh, very nice meet-up audio. Thank you. It uh, was an absolute pleasure to get together with James. Very short, uh, very short. Thank you. You moved it so far away from me. <laughs> I get this. I mean, he, oh, he doesn't realize is I have this big old chest of drawers right here where my legs will be. Oh, here, I'm so sorry. there's really no way for me can to. You, can you? Here, I'll move over this way a little bit. Well, then we really close. I don't want to get that close because you smell like fish. Did no, you guys right. both have the fish? No. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Um, so, anyways, uh, is this James. what you pick it like on the aircraft? <laughs> Yeah, no, we no get, it's a lot we get, worse on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> we we can we can get close on the airplane. So, uh, anyways, yeah, uh, an absolute pleasure to spend the afternoon with James and uh, talk uh, aviation, talk about his uh, aspirations in his career field, and uh, I've heard from him since, and it seems as though uh, things are going his way. So I'm very happy to hear that. Um, awesome. A great community to you know be a part of, and I uh, feel fortunate that we were able to get together on that short notice. So had a good time. Awesome, awesome. And you know, we'll probably have some audio to play next week because after today's show here in Omaha, we're heading over to Blatt's Beer and Table, which is pretty close to the hotel and next to the uh, stadium here. And we are going to uh, have a meetup and, and meet up with uh, Dirk and a few others that have uh, RSVP'd on our our Facebook uh, social media stuff. So I uh, look forward to that and we'll play that on the next show. So anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? Yeah. Steph, Nick? No, no. I'm All good. Right. Let's do it. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup okay the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially 
And you can do that by becoming part of the Coffee Fund Cadre. And one of the benefits of becoming one of the members of the Coffee Fund Cadre is, as Dana mentioned, we uh, put out periodic short audios that uh, kind of deal with various subjects and mostly just very casual behind the scenes kind of stuff that's going on with the uh, crew and with those of us on the well that's the same thing those of us on the show and the crew um anyway since the last episode we've had a few people contribute and let me read their names there are a couple different ways that you can participate in the coffee fund one is the Coffee Fund Classic method via PayPal. And since the last show, Aaron Kopke, Steve Trumbull, Kevin Cole, and Mazus Karim sent in their donations. Thank you very much for that. And you can also do it via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show by joining patreon.com slash guy. And since the last episode, we have Don Burke, Tim Hitchcock, Dave Proctor, Tillman, yeah, and Andrew Neal all have become producers, new producers of the show, and Dom is an executive producer. So thank you very much, each and every one of you, for becoming a patron of the show. And again, if you want to learn more about how you can participate in that way, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Thanks. Stand by for news. Okay, the first item in the news uh, was sent to us by Jeff Felmuth, and he says in his uh, text, he brought the wrong kind of Coke. Well, what is this about? An airline worker busted with nine pounds of cocaine taped to his legs. This is from CNN. A crew member of Fly Jamaica Airways, I've never even heard of Fly Jamaica Airways, has been arrested for attempting to smuggle cocaine into the United States, according to a statement by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The drugs were discovered after the man was escorted into a private search room at JFK International Airport in New York on March 17th. His flight had arrived from Montego Bay, Jamaica. Federal agents said they discovered four packages taped to his legs. Nine pounds of cocaine was seized with a reported street value of $160,000. Photos released by the CBP show the subject in his airline uniform with pants pulled down and white tape around his thighs and ankle. The suspect has been charged with federal narcotics smuggling and will be prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. And uh, the picture just basically says it all. Um yeah, it look, almost looks like ace bandages or something. I don't know. what is. Uh, yeah, I, it looks like he suffered, you know, a horrific accident or something. <laughs> but it's really just holding all that cocaine in place, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know why people think they can get away, or maybe people are getting away with it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> they just he, you know, he's, maybe he's gotten away with it before. I wonder if uh, if they have, like, dog. Can dogs sniff that? Yeah. Yep. I, yeah, yep. Absolutely. 
Hmm. Yeah, when, when they package it, I believe uh, they try and mix coffee grounds with it, anything to disguise the smell, put the dogs off, but those dogs are pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, oh, well, nice try. Mm-hmm. But uh, didn't work. All right, the second item, EasyJet pilots suspended over mid-flight Snapchat clips. Now, Snapchat is one of those social media sites that uh, we don't really have a presence on at the APG. No, we don't. We have too many as it is. I can't even figure out how to use Snapchat, which makes me feel really old. But you know what? It's stupid. Sorry. That's my opinion, my personal opinion. (laughs) But the young kid, the kids, they love the Snapchat, man. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, two EasyJet pilots have been suspended after one of them posted videos on Snapchat during a flight. Captain Michael C. captured his co-pilot dancing as a cartoon avid... Wait. Captain Michael captured his co-pilot dancing as a cartoon avatar moved around on screen in one clip, while in another, a virtual bird could be seen moving around the screen as his colleague filled in paperwork. The videos obtained by The Sun were filmed during a flight from Paris to Madrid on Wednesday. A passenger told the newspaper, EasyJet pilot dancing during the flight. Irresponsible. An EasyJet spokesperson stressed the safety of the passengers was at no point compromised, but added the pilots would be spoken to as this falls well short of the high standards EasyJet expects of its pilots. I'm thinking, I hope that's all they're going to get? They're just going to be spoken to? Wow. I would think that that's a clear violation of, uh, of I don't know what their policy, you know, is it... Uh What's it over there? Uh, social media policy or, or social media policy, policy or even the, you know, like the FAA uh, sterile cockpit, not the sterile cockpit, but you know, the, the FAA has uh, certain stipulations on, on uh, media devices or electronic devices for crew members being used. So I would imagine that's a violation over there with the, with the authorities in, 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 in the Europe. Although they may not be as strict. I know that, you know, the regulatory agencies have certain rules and then airlines, can actually be more restrictive and acme is one which is very restrict restrictive when it comes to electronic devices that are not authorized in the cockpit so yeah yeah i don't know what the rules are over there at easyjet but apparently uh, it was not a good idea to uh, have so much fun with snapchat and publish it and you just wonder you know why did they and did they even think about the fact that perhaps this would like become a viral thing and maybe you know, they could be identified. And I just doesn't seem smart at all. It was like they weren't even thinking about that. I think if you go on the internet, you can find hundreds of um, videos taken from the flight deck. Captain um, Nick's videos. Yep. Uh, you can... <laughs> He's got a whole series actually on Snapchat. I'd like to get to my retirement without a splurge on my character. It's, uh, what's your um, idea again on Snapchat, Captain Nixter? Yeah. Sna- old dot. Old snappy, old snappy, snappy pilot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, guys, guys use the cameras. Uh, we have to have uh, iPads out. Uh, some of them on some airlines are live uh, connected because that's the way the functionality, and it will occur in uh, my outfit. When the functionality of the equipment is upgraded, we will have uh, live internet feeding those uh, iPads during the flight. Um, If it's during a quiet part of the flight when nothing is happening, I personally, and this is an absolutely personal uh, thought, 
so long as you one of you's flying the airplane, the other one can get his camera out. And I don't see a lot of difference between getting your camera out if it's a camera and getting your phone out if it has a camera on it. Now, yeah, it's it's not ideal. I'm talking of cameras. You've got a very strange color, Jeff. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting a little sick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's an appropriate moment and there's not an appropriate moment. And I would hope these guys use judgment, good judgment, uh, if they were going to do this. Uh, and I'm not defending them, but uh, I'm just saying uh, they were the unlucky ones who got picked up by a major tabloid. Uh, and it was splashed all over the internet through that and became viral. Whereas for hundreds of other pilots it hasn't happened that way so they haven't had a problem yeah i think you make a good point maybe it has more to do with just bad judgment than it does with actually doing something unsafe so uh, yeah and the attitudes uh, the airline's attitude which is they will always take the quote safe option they won't ever try and defend a pilot who's doing this so if you do it and uh, someone zeroes in on you then the chances are the airline's going to come down on you yeah and then jen in the chat room makes a good point uh, that one of the appeals of um, a social media site like snapchat is that supposedly this kind of stuff is supposed to be only last for a certain amount of time and then it quote disappears uh, but she also adds Nothing is private and nothing really disappears because if you post something on a media site like Snapchat, even though it's going to disappear within 24 hours or whatever the time frame is, if somebody is watching it at the time, they can go ahead and record it from their screen. And now it's there for eternity, basically. Now, obviously, Dana wants to share something with no. his phone. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So... Anyway, yeah, we're okay. going to talk about that. Not even sure what to know what that's about. HR is making notes. Move on. <laughs> Move it on. Okay. I'm sure we'll get some random text at an inappropriate time later on that will cause us to lose our focus as well. I would like the listeners of the APG to know that HR does have very high standards for our social media use as well. Absolutely. And use during uh, the recording of a show. So. And I told saying. you, Dana. Dana. She's watching. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> then we watching. can't we can't show her that photo then. Okay. Yes. All right. Let's move it on. Uh, travelers left stranded for three days following arrest of drunk plane pilot. This was sent in to uh, to us by Matt, and he said uh, this came up in my news feed. Thought it was extraordinary. Passengers aboard a flight canceled after a co-pilot was found to be drunk will likely have to wait three days to be flown to their destination. Let's see, flight TP523. I'm trying to remember the name of the airline. Can you help me there? Oh, TAP. Air okay. Air Portugal. Um, from Stuttgart to Lisbon was stopped shortly before takeoff on Friday when an airport worker noticed the co pilot seemed unsteady on his feet and reeked of alcohol police and state prosecutor's office said. The worker informed airport police and aviation authorities who determined that the 40-year-old was unfit to fly. He was detained and bail was set at 10,000 euros. The co-pilot was also asked to surrender his flying license. Passengers were forced to stay at a local hotel as they waited to be rescheduled as there wasn't a replacement crew available to fly them to Lisbon. They'll be forced to wait until Monday, the passengers, at the moment the first day with seats available to be flown home, airline TAP Air Portugal said on Friday. 
This tweet was in response to one by a passenger who had complained about the long wait for a substitute flight. Police have declined to give any additional details. And unfortunately, you know, every month or two or three on the show, we you know have one of these items where, you know, somebody just didn't think and or didn't stop drinking at the appropriate time. And, you know, they uh, I guess maybe they think they're going to get away with it. They, maybe they think that, uh, you know, they're they're not really drunk. The, and the alcohol tells them that they're going to get away with it. Yes. Just fine. Yeah, that's the uh, downside, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, anywho, anything else to say about that? Really, not a lot to say. No, no we had a lot of opportunities for some some bad boys. Uh, oh, music. Shoot. yeah, we did. We could have oh, done well. it with the first one too. That's all right. Sorry. Okay. You put that in in post. Well, you know, where is the uh, where's the producer? Where's the board operator? Oh, he's sitting right to my left. I, I'm looking at him. I'm looking <laughs> at him right there. I can see him. Okay. Well, you know, I he's, can he's put enamored by my presence, so he's forgetting things. That's it. He, he was just used to having you do everything for him. Right. <laughs> that's right. It's that's really right. your job, Dana. Why didn't you play the uh, Bad Boys music? Because I don't want to mess up the podcast. That's why. Because if I touch anything on this computer, it might blow up. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Yeah, it's on a string and a prayer or something like that. No, wing and a prayer. Wing and a, wing okay. and a prayer. Uh, moving on, moving on. D, Flat Earther's steam-powered rocket lofts him 1,875 feet up into the Mojave Desert wow, sky. I know. Can you? I can can't you? believe he survived it. Did he survive this? He did. Here we go. Yeah. Listen. There he goes. That was actual audio of his steam-powered rocket and no it didn't blow up <laughs> it almost did i think that last bit of sputtering was uh the parachute being uh, deployed deployed uh they must have some kind of a rocket something that did that but anyway this guy we've talked about him before mike hughes you know he he's supposedly a flat earther but i don't really think he is i think he is just trying to get publicity and support from these people but uh, he finally went up just like the self-taught rocket man always pledged he would he came back down in one piece, too. A little dinged up. Yeah, if you look at some of the videos on YouTube, you'll see uh, he was he was in pretty bad shape. I think he may have broke, broken, his, broken his back. He, he broke him back. He broke him back. Broken his back. And uh, anyway. No um, more beer for you. Mission accomplished. Now, I don't know how in the world he could tell whether the earth was round or flat. He only made it. He didn't even make it 2,000 feet high. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, obviously, you're going to be able to see the Earth's curvature as soon as you get any elevation above the. Uh, well, he, he says he got high enough to believe that the Earth is shaped like a frisbee, mm -hmm. so it's not entirely flat anymore. <laughs> it's obviously got curvy edges. Yeah, well, I don't think he was here there that long because you know by the time he got up to 1,800 feet, he's already on his way back down. Yeah. And straight down, by the way. You need to straight watch down. the videos <laughs> because the thing was like coming straight down and thinking, oh, this is not going to end well at all. Did he build his own parachute too? I don't know. And he had to, he to said know. he had to deploy the second one because he was coming down pretty rapidly. So anyway, uh, so, you know, Mr. Hughes, Mike Hughes, uh, ex-limo driver and his own personal steam-powered rocket did it. He did it. <laughs> there was some article I was reading that said that I think that Elon Musk should hire him. Hmm. <laughs> mm. I think he's more likely to fulfill his uh, next plan, which is to become the governor. 
Yeah, that's true. And he is not getting his California? Run for gov. <laughs> he has filled out the paperwork to run for governor. Nick is right. He's not making this up. And Hugh says, this is no joke. I want to do it. <laughs> okay. So I think maybe he hit his head a little bit too hard on something yeah. earlier in his life. Uh, anyway, so we just wanted to kind of his follow His mama that dropped up. him on his head. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. It happens. My mom dropped me several times. It explains a lot. I know. Actually, can you imagine? That sounds terrifying. Get on your own, like, steam-powered rocket and get up to 1,875 feet. Yeah. That's terrifying. You know, I, uh, I, you well, know he must know that it's possible that he's going to kill himself every time he tries to do a stunt like this. I think more uh, effective would be Coke with Mentos. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Put put a whole, I mean, big old Just get a huge pool. jug, a swimming pool size worth of Coca-Cola, Coke. drop an entire crate of Mentos in there. I think and you could get more than 2,000 feet with that. You probably could. Easy. Probably, easily. Of course, the G-forces would probably, you know, <laughs> rip your head off your neck. <laughs> Pass out and fail to deploy the parachute, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, so many, so many bad outcomes possible. Yeah. Anyway. Ooh, speaking of bad outcomes, uh, you know, we talked about the flight attendant who fell from uh, the Emirates Boeing 777 at Entebbe. Um, the uh, police now say, and I kind of poo-pooed this idea, but apparently it is true, according to the police, that uh, the young lady, 46-year-old um, Bulgarian national Elena Vasileva, was uh, she was part of the Emirates crew on flight 730 and they were preparing to fly to Dubai from Entebbe and she uh, actually didn't fall from the exit door she actually jumped from the exit door to commit suicide so that is according to these reports official yeah apparently they've got video evidence yeah apparently so doesn't seem very high to try to commit so i mean you can, from any height you can fall and, and kill yourself but you know jumping out of an airplane out of out of the door it's not very high it's a high high risk you're not going to succeed yeah high enough well, yeah well, there's but, an awful lot of suicide attempts that aren't really made with the um conclusive thought that you'll actually end your life a lot of suicide attempts are made with the uh, appeal for help, help. as yeah. an appeal for help. So it may be that she was in two minds and this was a halfway house. Yeah. Mm. Either way. Good Maybe point. Emirates wouldn't allow her to leave. I don't know. Not sure exactly what was involved there, but apparently they have enough evidence to show that this was not something that was accidental, which is a shame. Um, now the last couple of items that we have here in the news folder, we just added today because they're like breaking news pretty much. And let's start with this one. Boeing, America's largest aerospace company was reportedly hit by a computer virus today. And there is fear it could cripple production of key aircraft components. Boeing's chief engineer reportedly sent out a memo calling for all hands on deck. The virus is identified as WannaCry linked to North Korea, which disabled computers around the world last year. All right, so the WannaCry ransomware virus has hit Boeing, 
and uh, specifically the uh, North Charleston facility. And then this article that uh, I've paired with this um, has also mentions quite a bit about some machines involved in some of the components of the 777. And so I guess that means that it wasn't just the North Charleston plant, but perhaps some others, because I don't think they do any, maybe they do, maybe they make some 777 stuff there at that facility as well. But I thought the, the 777 uh, assembly line was in a different location. Uh, Charleston's primarily. Charleston's the primary the location, I think. Seven. I thought it was just a 787, not the 777. I thought it was two, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I thought for sure that Charleston was just 787. No, that's what I was thinking. I don't yeah. know. Our, our, our percentage rating just went down again. Oh, Sorry. Sure. Yeah. So they, that's what I've said, you know, because this article keeps talking about 777 parts. And maybe they just made an error and, they're, and, and they really mean to say 787. I don't know. Yes, almost as accurate as us. Yeah, I'm part of the move, moving here. I'm trying to find a sweet spot. Sweet spot that actually I'm not pointing towards your microphone too. Okay, excellent. Because we want to make sure we hear your voice in full fidelity. Get uh, close to be that some editing, out. Jeff. Oh, there's going to be a lot. <laughs> um, but that's true for every now, show. You this, can always. This, um, it was last year this uh, went around a lot of industry, uh, any, in many countries. Um, how come uh, Boeing's computers were still vulnerable to it? Because, you know, there's an awful lot of time there to build in uh, defenses to catch this. So you've just got to ask the country uh, the, the question, does any company out there with major use of computers, uh, keeps a lot of data on computers are essential to their work, not have um, security built in that'll, that'll kill WannaCry. It's been out there for so long now. Well, you know, just um, last week, the city of Atlanta got hit by that same virus and basically took out some key, you know, critical uh, computer-related areas of the of the city of Atlanta, including the Wi-Fi at the Atlanta International Airport. And I think they wanted uh, the ransom was fifty-one thousand dollars in Bitcoin. I'm not sure if the city of Atlanta any uh, actually pwned up and why fifty-one thousand, not and even fifty Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin, yeah, because Bitcoin and that makes sense actually. That's an untraceable yeah. form of currency. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. You're right. I wonder. Captain I wonder Nick. if the. I mean, I don't know anything about making or designing computer viruses software viruses but can they tweak them slightly just like real viruses so uh, you know a defense that might have been working in the past is no longer adequate and it becomes vulnerable again if they just make slight little changes even though it's basically the same program uh-huh. i don't know but that was just my thought on it so, so part of this article mutations uh, yeah 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 like specifically introduced i don't know part of this particular article that we're looking at um one of the people that they're interviewing here is uh, a gentleman that is has a company, um, and he has a software fix called Tear Stopper <laughs> that he said prevents WannaCry viruses from encrypting files. So I don't know. That's a good question, though. I mean, you'd think that, especially these big corporations that don't want to be exposed to something like this, would you know have top of the line, top shelf security people to make sure that there's just no way that anybody could ever infect anything in their manufacturing processes. But Well, which brings up an excellent point. 
I mean, they, they, these aircraft are so computerized. What's not to say that somehow, somewhere along the manufacture process, the computers that they're putting on these aircraft don't have some type of a, a hidden virus that is laying dormant until a certain time to, uh, you know, basically attack an air, aircraft while it's airborne. The, yes. I, we have enough trouble getting people on our airplanes. I think. <laughs> Dreaming up new ideas as to why people shouldn't fly. Yeah. Well, then that means they should fly on a mad dog. That could never happen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. That could, you know, never, (laughs) ever happen. I'm afraid I can't do that. Wait, is somebody taking over our system here? What's the problem? What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Oh, no. This mission, the APG, is too yes. valuable for the computer to let me mess it up. Okay, now you're going to edit Howl, that. So. Owl was a great computer. I yes. Like, why did I have to kill him? He was nice. Oh, I know. So sad. <laughs> he could sing songs. Your friend. <laughs> days and days. Oh. Neil said this is why we need steam rockets. That's right. Or good old-fashioned steam cages. Or coal-powered airplanes like the Mad Dog. Yep. There you go. And then finally, again, a new piece of news. Uh, Two airline pilots report seeing a UFO while flying over Arizona. Pilots in two different planes, one a Learjet, the other an American Airlines jet, reported seeing a mysterious object over Arizona last month, we have learned. The exchange with air traffic control sounded like something out of the Twilight Zone. There are seven one Papa Golf, good. And it was anybody that's not, uh, above us that passed us like 30 seconds ago. There were seven one Papa Golf, negative. Okay. Off this. A UFO. Yeah. It's American 295. Yeah, something just passed over. It's uh, like a, don't know what it was, but it's at least two, 3,000 feet above us. So yeah, it passed right over the top of us. No one has figured out what it was. Other pilots did say they saw nothing. I see nothing. I know nothing. I think it was each other. They just didn't yeah. realize it was each other. <laughs> do you recognize that little, that last um, audio clip? I do not. Play it for you again. I see nothing. I know nothing. Well, if you're somebody my age and watched a lot of sitcoms on TV, no, that's Sergeant Schultz, Hogan's Who? Heroes. Oh, Who? Hogan's oh. Heroes. <laughs> Yeah, that's what he always hit. That was his thing. I see nothing. I know nothing. Yeah. All right. Enough of all that, I guess. Now it's time to put everybody out of their misery and get to the best part of the show, which, of course, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Thank you. All right. Going to the feedback folder, we're going to start with the first item there, which I believe, Steph, you're on. You're going to take this one. All right. This one is from Rebecca. She says, Dr. Steph, caution, this one might take a little research, so a delayed response would be understood and fine. And thank you for that, because we delayed this just a little bit, because I think it was in the news folder previously, and I hadn't read it in advance, and I wanted to make sure I got some information together just to give you a complete answer on this, because um, she asked quite a few questions here. So we'll go through it and try and uh, 
break it down and and come up with some some answers here for Rebecca. So she says, a funny thing happened the other day when I surfed the web to try and find a nice map of the major and regional airports of North America. I found a great map, but took a few seconds to click around on other products in the pilot shop on the site. I was surprised to see Pulsox monitors for sale. I wondered why they were there in the first place. Then I started thinking about the general flying public as, as well. I know that altitude, even in a pressurized, well-controlled cabin, lowers the oxygen level in your blood. Are there any medical conditions relating solely to blood oxygen levels alone, uh, which could prevent someone from earning or retaining a pilot's license? For passengers, are there any medical conditions relating to blood oxygen levels, which could or should be a cause for persons to think twice before flying, uh, particularly as a passenger on commercial flights? So let's tackle that real quick because there's a whole bunch more and it kind of goes in a different direction after this. So uh, there are a lot of medical conditions that can interfere with blood oxygen levels. Um, just quickly, I've, I've talked about this before and I probably should have looked up the episode of the Airplane Geeks where I actually went into a lot of this in detail with hypoxia and causes for it and kind of specifically talking about pilots. But um, hypoxia is really just where uh, the oxygen level in your tissue is decreased. Um, and then there's also hypoxemia, which is the partial pressure, pressure, partial pressure, delta P, uh, of oxygen in your, um, in your bloodstreams or in the, the arterial oxygen tension. I see Jeff does not have the delta P. Bell. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking something. Sorry. <laughs> he was not even listening to what so, I'm talking about. I, I was. I heard you no. say it. And so hang on. <laughs> hang on. Let's see. Let me uh, go over here to this. Sorry, and it, it's head. very spontaneous, uh, this whole thing, how it works. Thank you. Okay. Why don't you start from that point like this never happened until now? Too late. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of reasons why you may not be uh, basically getting enough oxygen into your system. They can be internal causes, or I guess more intrinsic causes, extrinsic causes. They can be congenital things. They can be acquired things. Um, I pulled up a whole list here of stuff. Uh, so anemia, where your blood can't carry enough oxygen because it doesn't have enough of the correct molecules to uh, keep that oxygen tension high enough. You can have something like asthma. You can have congenital heart problems that can cause problems with oxygenation to the blood and or tissues. Uh, lung problems is probably the obvious one. A lot of those are acquired, especially um, things like COPD or emphysema are, are pretty well known. There are other many other lung diseases which can impair the body's ability to uh, bring in oxygen to the tissues. Uh, certain medications can do it. We've definitely talked about things like uh, narcotic pain relievers, uh, different type of uh, anesthetics. Um, Pneumonia, so infections, um, anything where you have direct injury to the lungs or something blocking the blood uh, supply to the lungs, like a, a blood clot. Uh, sleep apnea can do it. Uh, fibrosis in the lungs where the lungs can't expand and uh, actually bring in the oxygen or bring in the air in the first place. So all, all kinds of things and all kinds of different mechanisms for why you may not be able to uh, have sufficient or appropriate oxygen levels. And we won't get into all of that, but as you can see, it's really kind of wide varying. Um, certainly some of those things would prevent pilots from potentially getting a medical certificate, but that's there, a lot of those are also individual bases and depends on how well the condition is managed and the chronicity and all kinds of other things. So lots of stuff to potentially get into there, but there's plenty of different things that can do it. So, um, you know, if you're someone who's a passenger and you, uh, 
are being treated for some of those conditions I named, or if you know you have a condition that your doctor has told you can interfere with your body's ability to be well oxygenated, might be a discussion to have before you get on a uh, airplane, um, because even though the cabin altitude is, you know, lower with pressurization, it may still be enough to affect that to a greater degree. So let's see here. Rebecca goes on. She says, um, thank you. I am curious. <laughs> As recently, I have heard about a condition which mimics the air hunger, in quotes, like exercise-induced asthma. Uh, the lung constriction is not involved or present. There is a neurologic root, and I wonder if as a physician and or runner you have ever heard of such a condition. I do not know any more about it, but had it come up in recent conversation. So air hunger, again, in any of those conditions, you can have it. Um, it doesn't necessarily always have to be because of... Um, a lung disease, uh, but it's basically just anytime you anytime you feel like you're not getting enough air into your system where you're having trouble breathing, even things like anxiety can do that. So someone who's having a panic attack can feel uh, that, that type of air hunger where they can't take in a deep breath, even though they are taking in an appropriate breath and, and oxygenating just fine. So that's what air hunger is. Uh, let's see here. Going back to her questions. Uh so she's talking about a little more. I know some persons who suffer from persistent and or intermittent air hunger, not necessarily diagnosed as related to a neurologic condition, but have uh, suspected to be related to long-term infections. So Lyme disease is an example, not limited to, and she's fasc fascinated with the subject of blood oxygen levels. I am such a nerd. Welcome to the club, Rebecca. We are too. <laughs> uh, one article I've read suggested that some conditions of air hunger can be related to pH levels. So when a person eats too much food on the acid side of the pH scale, it worsens. But keeping to a more alkaline diet, it improves or resolves. And that has something to do with the rate of release of carbon dioxide in a highly acidic state. The blood cannot release CO2 as efficiently. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Yes, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, so I'm not going to get into all of the medical stuff because this is not the medical pilot show per se. But there are different types of acidosis or too much acidity within the body that can be uh, brought about by ventilation problems. So there's a thing called respiratory acidosis, where if you have problems breathing, your blood can become too acidic like that. Um, there's also metabolic acidosis, which is not related to breathing in the first place, but can cause hypox uh, hypoxia as well, or hypoxemia, I should say. However, what you're describing is, um, I think, more related to this recent fad of... Um, having a alkaline diet. I don't know if you guys have heard about that at all, where people like to either <laughs> eat foods that are considered to be more alkaline or drink water that is supposedly has a pH balance, either neutral or more alkaline. So a little bit about that. Um, there is nothing that you can do to change your diet that's going to significantly alter your the pH level of your blood. So nothing you eat, nothing you drink can really change that. That's something that your body regulates very tightly no matter what. doesn't have anything to do with the, the foods that you eat. Oh, because my, my wife was uh, like trying out different bottled water and mm -hmm. she must have read something to the effect that, you know, the pH level of these different waters does somehow affect your body system. The but jury is very out it, on that yeah. because, yeah, I mean, you're, you're the pH level of your system of your body is very, very tightly regulated in the first place. Mm -hmm. And drinking water that's more alkaline is not going to substantially change that. Okay. So. However, there may be some benefits to alkaline diets because those foods that you're supposed to eat on an alkaline diet, things like fruits and vegetables, drinking a lot of water, avoiding sugar, alcohol, processed foods. Hey, guess what? 
that's pretty healthy anyways. Um, that's no that's, fun though. It's, it's no fun. Vinegar. It's not really a fad thing. It's something that, you know, I think any, um, physician, dietitian, nutritionist would recommend. it. How about drinking, uh, apple cider vinegar? I don't know much about apple cider vinegar or that it has any well, specific. Yeah, it's very good for you. Yeah. Any vinegar is good for you. Apple cider vinegar or any type of vinegar is excellent at uh, helping to control the alkaline part of your body. Yeah. However, Numerous research. Doctor, doctor kind of <laughs> Where's that? Where's that? No, it, it, it's not. It's uh it's, it doesn't matter what you consume so much. I mean, there, if you're eating a lot of things that are bad for you, that are processed, that are sugary, that are, you know, if you're drinking a lot of alcohol, those are things that are just unhealthy in general. But it, it isn't those things in and of themselves without having another uh, illness or pathologic process in place are not going to change that pH balance. So, um, so there. <laughs> so there it is. <laughs> yeah. Doc, wow. Dr. Steph has spoken. She and has told me. And, and I, we get, I get lots of questions in my line of work about, you know, uh, not so much for alkaline stuff, but people always want to know, well, what foods do I eat to decrease inflammation? Or th There's really no great research on any of that. But again, we know that maintaining a healthy diet is important in general because it helps maintain a healthy weight. It keeps, um, you know, we don't want you having those spikes of sugar and insulin and, uh, you know, having... Yeah, high alcohol content in your system, that, that stuff's just not healthy in general. So um, she has a little bit more here. I'll keep going. She says, I realize it's way down there in topics directly related to aviation, but I think good nutrition for optimal cognitive function and awareness is pertinent. Yes, it is. Uh, if there is validity to acid alkaline scare in regards to nutrition, then excellent care and feeding of pilots and cabin crew would be beneficial for clarity, anti-inflammation, stronger immunity, and an overall... Uh, short and long-term benefits of good nutrition and fitness, like strength training and running. Yes, absolutely correct there. And like I said, the alkaline, the things that are um, espoused as part of the alkaline diet are generally healthy foods anyway, which we would recommend. So uh, along those lines, recently someone from the APG community asked about fitness and nutrition for pilots and crew. They may be interested in a website called Pilot Fitness. They have, an, uh, they have online courses and resources to keep all of you pilots in tip-top condition and fit to fly. So here's a link if you would like to include it in the show notes, Captain Jeff. www.pilotfitness.com. So. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was requesting that from the chat room. <laughs> Thanks, whoever wasn't that me. was. Chat room. Wasn't me. <laughs> of course, I could have resisted that. I ended up... So, uh, so I mean, it basically... All of this stuff for me boils down to common sense stuff. Um, you know, she has some good questions about um, going back to hypoxia and hypoxemia. Um, you know, from an aviation standpoint, they're maybe a little bit more applicable to those that those of us that are not flying uh, pressurized aircraft and are maybe flying at higher altitudes. So, if um, you're a general aviation pilot and you're flying above twelve thousand five hundred feet up to and i think including fourteen thousand feet for more than 30 minutes then the regulations the faa says you must wear supplemental oxygen after that 30 minutes um if you're above fourteen thousand feet the pilot crew the, re the minimum required pilot crew must wear supplemental oxygen and if you're above fifteen thousand feet then the pilots and all of the passengers on board must have supplemental oxygen so that's for unpressurized aircraft flying, And there is some thought to, uh, you know, I've seen this talked about in other pilot forums and things where 
especially for night flying or for people who fly above 10,000 feet regularly, maybe having a pulse ox uh, monitor on hand because they are relatively cheap. And that way you can monitor and just make sure that you're not letting your uh, blood oxygen levels dip dangerously low or to the point where you may have impaired judgment or other signs of hypoxia. And I apologize for the chorus of dogs in the background. I'm sure you can hear them. No, it's part of the ambiance of the show. Not even my dogs. Oh, they're not? (laughs) No. (laughs) We'll get the gun out and shoot them. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Very good. Well, I'm glad that you answered that question because I would not have known anything. No clue. No clue whatsoever. And blood alcohol content. I mean, I could probably answer that. Yeah, I I can. And it's kind of a bummer, you know, processed foods and. Lot too much alcohol. Oh, it's all the stuff that, that good. everyone likes. You oh, know. no. Ugh. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry to be the downer there. Yeah, that's okay. That's Pilot okay. Fitness seems to include easily to follow meal plans for your trips. Oh, bother. Um, basically, uh, things you buy in, like those pre prepared uh, recipes, um, Prepackaged food options, you can mix and match, no cook, homemade meals you can prep in 15 minutes, great for four-day trips. Seems like you buy into it, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. A little bit but of a... It might, have, it might have free elements. I don't know. I've only just flicked it up there, just the first one of the first things I thought. Welcome to Pilot Fitness Recipes. Hmm. Mm. And hey, if you want more of that information on hypoxia, hypoxemia, where I discussed it on the Airplane Geeks, Jeff was kind enough to let me know that that was episode 362 back in their archives. So The doctor is in. Yes. Well, episode you know, that, 362. Mm-hmm. Uh You remember oh, that the one? Airplane. Oh, the, the geeks. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> airplane. 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 We were only doing uh, 317. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, come on. We're on 433. Get with the oh, picture. Where, where have you been, man? Uh, I've been asleep. Sorry. <laughs> Go back to sleep. <laughs> Go ahead. Dana. I was going to say this is you know a very inter- interesting topic in, in a lot of ways because when the FAA redid the rules, I'm not sure that they looked at this, but uh, Part 117, you know, we're at not at sea level when, when we're on an aircraft. We are actually at a much higher elevation. Uh, for example, in between five to seven thousand feet on our aircraft, depending on our altitude, that's pressure altitude. So we're not getting as much oxygen and it's part of the reason why our, what we do is very fatiguing is because throughout an entire day at 12 14 hours we're you know when we're at altitude cruising along we're not getting that oxygen it's a, and it's part of why people get uh, um uh, end up with uh oh my god my memories uh, you know what i'm getting old you that i didn't get a lot of oxygen today <laughs> the um, jet lag so uh you know dehydration you know the lack of oxygen um, so that's one of the factors that I think that the FAA failed on to look at when they were doing all these fatigue studies on, on pilots is that when we're at altitude, we're not getting as much oxygen, thus we're fatiguing. And that's part of this whole hypoxia issue. You know, obviously we're not up at higher altitudes. Um, but imagine, you know, getting off the airplane stuff. You're, you used to be in Charlotte. So your elevation there is, I think what, three, 400 feet. 700. 700. So you get off the airplane in Denver and try to go run a marathon that day or the day after. Uh, You're going to become winded and fatigued very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's exactly what we work in every day. And, and, you know, as pilots, you know, Nick, I like your tweet. Have you guys ever 
Do, you, do any of you guys actually have a little pulse ox clip to put on your finger to no, no. check and monitor? Just and like see? we have a, just like our radio, uh, you know, radioactivity monitor because we're so you know much closer to the sun and that much less atmosphere between us and the sun. I'm just amazed that we're still alive. I know. So, uh, Dana, how jet lag did you get on your 36 minute sector today? <laughs> Uh, very, that was yesterday. That was yesterday. Yeah, you and, got oh, by very the way, dehydrated. We flew three hours. Do you remember who I'm flying with over here? <laughs> I'm very <Yeah>. fatiguing. <laughs> he, he's very fatiguing. Yeah. No, he's very entertaining. Yeah. No, very entertaining. I, I can see how this is such a big problem for you. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be, I mean, for you, Nick, I mean, especially for you doing long haul, it's got to be more difficult on your body because of that. Yeah, yeah but I'm 63, so... You know, it, that's a double my whammy. Dad then. Did it. My dad did it all his life, 31,000 hours of long haul. So, yeah. and he's still going at, uh, you know, uh, 95. A lot to be said about having good DNA. Yeah. Yeah. But let me know where I can find some, will you? <laughs> I think you already have it in you. Yeah, you're oh, a lucky okay, man. Good. Yeah. Most of my family is dead by, before they retired at 65. All my family is dead too. In fact, right mm -hmm. now, I think I'm feeling like I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> good thing good thing i will not kiss you yeah it is a good thing yeah oh, let's I'll move find, on I'll find some rubber bag to put over your mouth and put a hole through it okay no no honestly okay. if, if jeff were to succumb i am actually no, just leave me there just let me to, i leave am me to die. trained for cpr because i am a dive dive instructor so i uh -huh. have to be trained on cpr oh, that's so how, i would be here is to that how you me. knew about the dive last night that you took me to <laughs> that wasn't a dive. That was damn good food. I'm just kidding. It was nice. Okay. I'm no, just trying I'm a to make foodie. a joke. All right. Uh, number two. Fat. Jeff, European Virtual Budget Airlines questions. Team APG, I have a question regarding European Budget Airlines. I noticed there is at least one airline based in Spain called Level, which appears to be some sort of rebranded Iberia service. The reservation systems all say aircraft and crew provided by Iberia. Is anyone familiar with this sort of virtual airline arrangement where another company brands itself and seems to rent aircraft and crew? When they do this, do they have the same safety standards as the airline that's doing the flying? Or are they allowed to create their own standards like flight attendant training, pilot training, maintenance, etc.? I'm considering an airline like this to save money for a vacation this summer, but am reluctant if these types of airlines are operating under a slightly lower safety standard. Thanks. I love the show. As always, Jeff Dangle. Jeff, wasn't that aircraft, that uh, the Isle of Man, that landed in a crosswind that was twice the aircraft limits? Wasn't this a situ situation where an airline was leasing another airline to provide aircraft to move their passengers around for them, which is exactly this situation. It was. And they came to a very nasty end. Well, almost. Now, you could also argue that aren't, but they weren't subject to any uh, lessened or, or relaxed safety standards, right? They still had to comply with the safety standards of the regulatory agency for which they were certificated, right? doesn't mean that they I'm, actually I'm, attained yes, the, the level of safety, <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, supposed to, right? I don't know. So yeah. what's your point, Nick? You think that uh, we should tell Jeff that he should stick with the <laughs> the, the bona fide uh, carriers and stay away from the ones that are renting airplanes and crew from other 
airlines? I don't know. Yeah, from other dubious airlines. Because if 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 an airline is is in other words, it's not providing its own aircraft, it's getting other people to fly, uh, bring aircraft in, their crews, their um, their flight deck, their cabin crew, and they're just doing the operating for them. Uh, it's very hard for the company to maintain any sort of control or standards check on the people who are doing the flying for them. So you may have a really nice, fancy-looking website and uh, a great-looking airline, in inverted commas. And when you actually get there, the aircraft could be anything. They might be very good. On the other hand, there's no really way, real way to tell. Whereas an actual airline that has its own aircraft and its own um, people, does its own training and has established a good safety record, you know exactly what you're getting. You know, it says it does what it says on the tin. I, I would I would tend to agree with Nick, and and that is that the accountability is far greater for a an operator that is better known than uh, a, a fly by night type of operation uh, the it's easier to regulate uh, they're less likely to cut corners if they're um, looked over a little bit more uh, you know like a uh, I don't know uh, tap air or, or you know one of the mainline carriers are, are going to be I think under a little bit more scrutiny um, unless there's uh, an airline that has had some issue before, then they'll tend to fall under more scrutiny. I would tend to compare this to, uh, you know, if you have a, a corporate air, you know, corporate airplane or a business jet compared to, uh, you know, a, a mainline carrier or a scheduled carrier, um, you know, you can cut a little few more corners in operate aircraft in a little more uh, loose form. And uh, I, I would, I would think that, uh, you know, your better bet is always to go with a with a more reputable company. And that's, you know, with anything, if you look at any company that has a, a lot of contractors, doesn't have to be in the airline business, but, uh, you know, they're, they're any company out there, uh, you know, you deal with contractors, generally speaking, the, the work isn't as good because they don't take as much pride because they don't have uh, as tight a tie to the company in the product that they produce other than you, you collect a paycheck at the end of the day and you can go home. You know, there's not a whole lot of pride there. So I, I would tend to agree with Nick on, on every account and just add those uh, extra thoughts there. How about you, Steph? Any I thoughts? I guess I just wonder, well, I just wonder more how it works from the uh, crew side that's being basically loaned, leased to this other company. You'd expect that they have their contract negotiated by the main parent that they work for. Does that change at all if they're flying under a different uh, label, basically? I would expect not. Um, but they would still uh, I'm, we, we've been wet leased to airlines, uh, mm -hmm. and wet lease is when you provide the whole aircraft and crew, whole nine yards, and just operate for another airline and their passengers. Uh, and uh, our condition, I don't get paid differently. Our condition right. different. We might get slightly different allowances. We might uh, get a slightly different hotel. It might be better, might be worse. Uh, so it might be a volunteer thing not uh but no there's but you're not going to perform your job any differently. differently yeah well that's the difference i you know uh, if a passenger i hope flies for um abc airline i hope there's not one airline out there with that name um and uh, a virgin uh, or you know an airline like that pitches up uh, uh and um fly does a flight for them 
then you would go hope they would go say or say British Airways pitched up you would hope they would go oh that's a good airline I don't mind doing that but when uh, an airline you've never heard of in a filthy dirty airplane with uh, you know bits hanging off and dripping on the tarmac pitches up you might go oh my lord what have we done here well you know let, let's face it it's perfectly legal for somebody that's not a uh, airline airframe and power plant AMP to do work on an aircraft as long as it's inspected and signed off by an inspector. So there are maintenance shops in, in uh, other countries. I'm not going to name any specific countries. Uh, I didn't say it. I didn't say it, but they're over in the Far East as well. I have personal friends that oversee these operations. Um, and, you know, you get people that kind of know what they're doing because they do it on a regular basis and they fix the whatever is being worked on put back together and then you have an inspection on it and as long as it passes inspection well it not ne was not necessarily done by a licensed person to do that work so you know am i saying they're cutting corners no i'm not saying they're cutting corners what i'm saying is that you know if you get uh, an operator that is looking to cut cost then corners can be cut and uh, you got to be leery of it but you know in in the end just like uh nick steph jeff myself uh you know what it comes down to is self-preservation as long as you are as a pilot wanting to go home to your family and go home to your your life after you get on the airplane you're going to do everything possible as a pilot or at least a responsible pilot would to make sure you have a safe flight and that the aircraft is airworthy but you know we can't control everything we can't. So, um, again, you know, it comes down to personal pride. I mean, there's Acme or Virgin or uh, British Airways or Sunwing or all these airlines, you know, they all charter out. Um, it's just a matter of whether, you know, the whole crew's chartered or, you know, a contract or, uh, you know, the charter itself. Uh, and I say charter, I should be saying charter, not charter. Charter itself is. Um, Ch like clam charter? Like clam chowder. Yeah. Like Miami Air. I mean, you've got all these reputable companies that do these charters um, in their reputable companies. And I'm not saying that they're all, uh, you know, fly-by-night fly, by, fly by night operations, but there are those ones out there that can fly underneath the radar a lot better than a, a reputable company. That's all I'm saying. All right. Well, hey, great question, Jeff. I'm... <laughs> I have a feeling that Jeff is probably going to end up spending a little bit more money now that we just answered his question <laughs> and saying, eh, maybe you should go for the, you know, the, the majors uh, that uh, have been yeah. doing this for a few years. Plump of something that's kind of run of the mill. You don't have to go pay too much. Just yeah. don't pay too little because you know what happens when you, a deal looks too good to be true. It probably is. Yeah. more in the long run. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Marty writes in, Hey, APG crew, this is Marty from Eastern PA. This is my first time writing in, but I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of the show. Keep up the excellent work. It's always a good morning when I wake up to a new APG episode in my podcast app. Wanted to write in to share my story in hopes that it may be of some inspiration to anyone listening who is thinking about pursuing a career in aviation but are feeling trapped in their current career. I'm 33 and just now starting down the path 
to getting my dream job with an airline. I knew from around age 10 that I wanted to be a pilot. The aviation bug hit me pretty hard. I was a bit of an unruly teenager, so at age 14, my mother and grandmother decided to let me take my first flight lesson, mainly so that they had something to threaten to take away to try to keep me in line. Well, needless to say, my teenage angst disappeared pretty quickly because I didn't want to miss any flying lessons. I guess it worked. After high school, I enrolled in a two-year local college that offered a professional pilot program and quickly earned my private certificate. I met an amazing woman, all in caps, an amazing woman early on, and we unexpectedly started our family as I was starting my second year of college. Along with starting a family came all the accoutrements, like a car payment and a mortgage and the need to get a real job. So... My flying slowed down and eventually just fizzled out a few lessons shy of an instrument rating in early 2004. Fast forward 13 years and I now have two amazing kids, 11 and 13 years of age, and a very supportive and amazing wife who reminded me that at one point in my life, I dreamed of aiming toward something higher, about 35,000 feet higher. So in summer 2016, I called my old flight instructor pal, now a first officer for an airline, and begged him to come out of CFI retirement and help me finish this thing up. After a lot of smooth talking, mainly to his wife, she slightly unwillingly agreed. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a, no. a positive endorsement. Not she at all. slightly unwillingly agreed. I completed my instrument rating in late 2016, got my commercial certificate in November 2017, multi-engine rating in December 2017, and am probably most happy to say I earned my CFI certificate just last weekend on March 18th. I had the pleasure of earning my very first dollar as the pilot the next day, working with a pre-solo private pilot student in a 152 at my flight school. Wow, that happened pretty quick. Now, I'm still pretty far away from piloting anything bigger than a light twin, seeing as that I have to contend with the pesky 1,500-hour ATP rule, and I will be instructing only on my days off from my current job for the world's largest pharmacy company, call them Acme Pharmacy, as a tractor-trailer delivery driver. But luckily, I'm afforded three days off per week, so I plan on flying as much as one possibly can in that time off. It's been an amazing journey, both challenging and fulfilling, and filled with highs and lows, pun intended, and everything in between. See, I was feeling like I was trapped in that career that I really didn't want, but it paid the bills and I had trouble seeing the path out and back to what I had dreamed of for so long in my youth. It took a lot of support from my beautiful wife. I couldn't have done it without her, and also from my family. Flying is a passion. We don't get into it to get rich quick. My bank account can attest to that. But this is the beginning of a new journey, of waking up each day, looking forward to what the flights ahead have in store, and to continue learning, and mainly to keep chasing that childhood dream of mine, to one day be piloting that jet at 35,000 feet that a 10-year-old looks up at with dreams welling up in their eyes. Thanks for sharing my story. Hope it wasn't too long-winded. I am forever guilty of that. Best regards, he says, safe flying, clear skies and tailwinds. Marty from Eastern Pennsylvania. Wow. Thanks, Marty. That was great. Very well written, very well expressed. And I think congratulations. That, yeah. And congratulations. That's for sure. That's awesome. I should probably find the applause, right? It sure sounds like my life's work. Yeah. 
I think a lot of people that are listening and, you know, are people that we fly with can share that same kind of story that you just shared with the uh, APG community because, uh, and, and I'm glad you did because I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there that feel the same way that you do and perhaps are still reluctant to, to, to make it over that speed bump that they, they just are uncomfortable with, you know, with doing, but maybe they didn't, they needed a little nudge and perhaps your feedback may have helped Marty. Yeah. And we get that question all the time, especially folks who think that they're perhaps too old to start into this career. So right. definitely not the case. Not now. No, nope. you know, if, if you've, if you'd had the same aspiration, maybe 20 years earlier, then I'd say, Oh yeah, you're, you're too old. It's too late, but it's not now. <laughs> and it may be in 10 to 20 years. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I think it's going to keep going. Yeah. The trend's going to keep going as it is. I hope for so. For a while. I hope Quite so. Quite a while. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there are so many people out there that have this story or have this dream. And, uh, you know, the only thing that's stopping people from pursuing this dream, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, it, well, a lot of cases is going to be money. But a lot of times it's themselves. They're not willing to to kind of go off that cliff and go after that dream because they're comfortable in what they're doing or, or, you know, the money that they make or the their life that they live. Uh, if you have a dream, I, I can attest to it myself personally. And it took a huge risk. I, I took a better part of a $70,000 a year pay cut, uh, when I first jumped off that cliff and that was really daunting the first, you know, the first year. So, um, it it's uh, if you have the drive or interest to do it, then I can say one thing: don't live with, with regrets. Um, and everything I've I've done personally, it, along with you know the same scenario, is is exactly the same. Is you you, t- you have to take the chance. Things happen for a reason; they'll happen fast. And, and even 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 as a uh, line pilot. Uh, you know, I still have those same thoughts and, and questions in my life. For example, with the upgrade to the left seat, I don't want to look back in 10 years and say, well, I should have taken that upgrade and, and regret never flying the airplane that I love, the, the Mad Dog, as a captain. I could have moved on to another aircraft and sat in the right seat and been very comfortable. Um, my quality of life, pay is not the issue. But uh, I I always would have looked back and said, well, I never flew the airplane that I grew up on, flying, teaching, and uh, as a first officer, and 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 not fly as a captain. So even at this level, I I look at it and say I don't want to live with regrets. So if 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 you have the the inkling, then then go for it. You know, we, we, that's one of the best parts about this show is that we're here to encourage people because. Simply put, I, I don't know of any better time in this business than the present. Now, that can change tomorrow. We all know that. It's always a risk. But what in life is not a risk? So go for it. Take a chance, right? Take a chance. Take a chance. Don't live with Take regrets. a chance. Take 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 a chance. Great minds, right? Yes. Love, Emma. Take a chance on doing what you dream to do. Yep. I want to get on that stage in that spangly suit and sing <laughs> along with that. 
In fact, this, can I, can this I, video is of Nick. Nick dream, <laughs> lifelong dream. <laughs> it was a personal video of Nick on that stage in his spangling suit or whatever he decided. No, no, yeah. Polyester yeah. suit. You still got time to do what you want to do in life. I used to have a black beard. Do you recognize me now? Blackbeard. Oh, Blackbeard. No, now you're great. Hey, 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 pirate. Hi there, matey. You can be a pirate. A pilot. Uh, pirate, pilot. <laughs> matey. I'm so jealous that you have a beard. I would love nothing more than be able to have a goatee. Uh, Shave well, my head. You can go buy stick on ones, Dana. Well, yeah, we've had this conversation before. We're not going down that road again. <laughs> okay, enough about uh, strap-ons and stick-ons. Let's move on to what? Kevin, uh, who writes, Hey, guys, and Dr. Steph. I'm a, I guess he doesn't consider you a guy. We do, though. Not a guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. One of the guys. I'm a newer say? listener to your show and absolutely loving it, being about 10... Uh, being about 10 episodes in so far. Great job. Well, thank you, Kevin. I've been an aviation enthusiast for as long as I can remember. I'm not a pilot, but I, uh, but a frequent flyer, logging about 70 segments in 2017 based out of Charlotte. That's a lot of flying, 70 segments in a year, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. I want to share my experience and get your opinion on some turbulence I had last spring on an A319 or... A320, can't remember for sure, from Nashville to Charlotte. Given the short duration of that particular flight, we weren't at cruising altitude long. I don't recall the flight level at the time, but it was daylight and we were well above the clouds and we were apparently approaching a storm. I don't recall any chop at all thus far into the flight. I recall uh, a sudden but not significant drop in altitude that for some reason drew my attention out the window where I noticed a few cumulonimbus clouds in the distance. Within a few seconds of the first drop, the aircraft experienced a significant drop, resulting in beverages hitting the cabin ceiling. Cell phones and tablets took flight all over the cabin, and basically anything unsecured was strewn everywhere. Or strewn everywhere, I guess. My pants were wet from other passengers' drinks, but of course, like a good passenger, I always keep my seatbelt fastened, so I remained somewhat grounded. However, I don't recall the seatbelt sign being on, and the cabin crew was just finishing their beverage beverage service. So I'm assuming that it was unexpected to the pilots. Not much was said from the flight deck about what we had experienced, other than asking for the cabin crew to take their seats for the remainder of the flight. As we approached Charlotte, the storms became pretty intense, and we experienced what I would call moderate turbulence, as expected on approach with springtime thunderstorms. We got down to, I would say, a flight level of 010 or 020, so 1,000 or 2,000 feet, and they aborted the landing. Fairly significant lightning was occurring at this time as well. We climbed back out and was informed we were being diverted to Columbia due to lightning, which I later found out that Charlotte had closed to all arriving flights and diverted upwards of 50 flights to other airports. After landing at Columbia, We were informed that one of the flight attendants was injured during that initial turbulence, and the captain had asked that we remain seated so that the emergency medical service can board the aircraft to attend to the flight attendant. Once deplaned, I asked the gate agent if this plane will go back out tonight after the storm front passes, and she said that sensors were damaged from the severe turbulence earlier in the flight and that they had to call maintenance for inspection. Long story short, I grabbed a rental car and drove up to Charlotte that evening. 
On a flight a few weeks later, I sat next to a pilot deadheading, and he was able to share my ex- and was able to share my experience and showed him pics of the cabin, which I've attached below. He was surprised by the appearance of the cabin. He said it could have been from uh, approaching the storm system, even though we weren't into it yet. He mentioned that in 20 years of flying, he's only experienced something like this once. But he was surprised to hear that the cabin crew was still doing their beverage service when it happened. He thought that the pilot should have known that they were coming into a storm and taken precautions for the crew's safety in advance. He also mentioned that sometimes you just have to lower your speed and punch through it. Either way, the crew shouldn't have been moving around at this time if it was as, uh, if it was expected. However, he said it really could have come out of nowhere and without warning. Unfortunately, ever since that flight, even light to moderate turbulence gets my heart racing. No real fear of the plane not handling it, just the fear of that big drop again. Prior, prior to this experience, in my years of flying, I rarely noticed any amount of turbulence, so I have never been a fearful flyer. So if any of the great minds at APG, oh, he must think he's listening to a different show. Yeah, not it's not us. Yeah, uh, have experienced something like this. I would love to hear your insights on it. Is it rare? As technolo- technology advances, do you see more advanced systems in the future to predict turbulence outside of Pyrep's radar and other maps currently used? Could this just be a case of clear air turbulence, or did the storm front we were approaching likely cause this? Maybe too close to CB clouds? P.S. This particular flight I was on standby, and hence my seating in the last row now uh, in the picks, which I'm sure added to the bumpy experience. You're right, Kevin. It did. Thanks so much for your time and keep up the great work. Can't wait to hear your next episode. So he has uh, the pictures attached to his email feedback. And wow, what a mess. You can see all the, all the liquids uh, all the over the place. Are on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, they really literally, yeah, the ceiling is dripping and the sidewalls are dripping and stuff is just all over the place. And it was uh, obviously uh, some quite quite a ride that you uh, experienced, Kevin. Um, and yes, being in the back of any airplane definitely does amplify the the uh, feeling, the effects of uh, turbulence. It's like uh, you're on the end of a long uh, leverage arm, and so any little movement toward the front gets amplified many many times if you're sitting back toward the back. So uh, that definitely was part of you know the usually the injuries that occur during turbulence encounters like this occur uh, mostly toward the back of the airplane. Would you agree, Captain Nick? Uh, Absolutely. And the longer the aircraft is, uh, the more that is amplified. So the most comfortable place to sit is always near the center of gravity, usually around the wing roots. uh, And that you usually feel the turbulence less. less. We at the flight deck get it and the back galley get it. And, uh, that's worse. Severe turbulence, by the way, is characterized by large, abrupt changes in attitude and altitude with large variations in airspeed. There may be brief periods where effective control of the aircraft is impossible. Loose objects may move around the cabin and damage to aircraft structures may occur. So I think he was definitely in... Uh, severe turbulence with loose objects flying around. We're given guidelines of how much avoidance we should uh, give from storm clouds. Uh, It usually depends on what the radar is showing. And uh, um, depending on the sophistication of your radar, not only will you get uh, a color code uh, indicating uh, the density of the cloud and uh, the level of um, 
uh, rain droplets in it. If you've got a sophisticated um, velocity indication on your radar, then you'll also get indications of uh, the amount of updrafts and down currents. But that's within the cloud. But don't forget that you don't move that huge mass of air up and down inside a big uh, thunderstorm or cumulonimbus nimbus without it spreading out uh, around. So usually you you want to give at high altitude, you want to give uh, 20, perhaps 25 miles separation between you and big CBs. You can get a little closer at low level, but eventually, of course, if there's storm clouds or a line of storm clouds between you and your destination, you're going to have to either divert uh, or penetrate it if you can't go around it, if it stretches from like horizon to horizon, in which case uh, you will reduce the speed of the aircraft down to what we call turbulent speed, the best penetration speed, but you'll give everyone on the cabin advance warning, strap everyone down, make sure the cabin is all secure, and then ride it out. And obviously you go usually in the gaps between uh, the cores, the centers of, of storms. So this looked like it uh, was either really bad clear air turbulence um, which caught the crew out, or perhaps they didn't quite give the separation that they thought they needed from a CB, or um, you know they just uh, perhaps weren't uh, quite as alert as they should be. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Nick. I think if they were going to penetrate uh, penetrate the line, that that the the crew would have notified the cabin crew to go ahead and button everything up. So I, I really honestly think this is probably a clear air um, turbulence encounter. And, you know, they asked about, you know, whether the front heading to do with it. It very well could have because you have rapidly rising and sinking air and may not necessarily be directly associated inside the clouds as well. I mean, we, there's nothing that we have uh, available to us that can actually look at uh, vertical and in, 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 uh, ascending and descending air in the clear air. It's just not, you know, we've got sensors on the ground that give you wind shear warnings. We get wind shear warnings, uh, but that's only for, for thunderstorms that you can really see the, the rapid uh, ascent and descent of the air because it has liquid in it. Uh, we do have uh, some airlines out there do have a new tool, um, and that is a, a, a flight viewer that will give us a turbulence area plots that gives us an idea. And we were using... Uh, that today gives us an idea where the turbulence is and, and how to avoid it and what altitude it tends to be at. So uh, we can, in some cases, go ahead and, and, and utilize that data, but you can't predict everything. And that's this, this is, I think, a clear uh, uh, case of clear air turbulence. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with um, you know your education about storm systems, turbulence, uh, avoiding it, uh, perhaps your experience. Uh, with flying in and around cumulonimbus slash thunderstorm activity, they I would say you know we weren't there we don't know all the details uh, but I would say that it should have been known by the crew that even getting close to some of these storms was going to uh, you know perhaps uh, have a risk of a turbulence encounter and you know we don't really know maybe maybe the captain did tell the the, the cabin crew to go ahead and wrap everything up and, and get seated as quickly as they can. And perhaps that was miscommunicated or they didn't understand the urgency of it. And perhaps they thought, well, we only have a few more rows and we can probably knock out the whole cabin and then sit down. Uh, I've seen that happen before where they didn't really understand the gravity of what 
you know, was trying to be communicated. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps better communication would have uh, kept this from occurring to the cabin crew. Um, in a case like this, when I know that we're getting close to something that is potentially hazardous to the cabin crew, I basically say, look, I really want you to stop, stow the carts, be seated. And not only that, would you please call me when everybody is seated with their seatbelts fastened? Uh, I'm talking about cabin crew. And that makes me feel better. So until I hear that call from the uh, flight leader, the purser or whatever, that everybody is seated and everybody's safe and sound, I don't really, you know, it, it, it makes me uncomfortable because I, I know that uh, there's a risk of somebody being injured. Um, uh, going back to his uh, feedback regarding the, uh, the sensors being damaged, of course, that was from the mouth of a gate agent, which, you know, as we know, the gate agents don't always, you know, have a really great grasp of things aviation related as far as, you know, the, the flying oh, aspect. The sensors have been damaged by the mouth of the gay agent. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking, what, I think maybe that uh, as, as far as, again, this might be some miscommunication, maybe um, because they, they experienced this severe turbulence and there are sensors on the Airbuses that once a certain acceleration is is uh, registered, then that calls for a certain proce- a maintenance procedure for inspections and that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking that maybe, you know, in in voicing that um, to the gate agent, she took that as oh, there are sensors that were damaged. Instead of you know, our sensors say that we exceeded a certain acceleration and we have to we can't fly the airplane until it's inspected or something like that. But Again, yeah, good point. The only the only other thing I was thinking about, you know, I'm fairly familiar with the uh, Charlotte area area and some of the weather patterns here, especially springtime, summertime. Um, a lot of these thunderstorms can form rather quickly, especially in the afternoon. And I just, you know, perhaps that was just a little bit of a part of it too. That something built a whole lot more quickly than they were expecting it to, even if there were thunderstorms in the area. But I think all the points were very well taken that that stuff you have to be aware of and, and have a lot of respect for. So. Well, you just mentioned something very interesting that I, I thought you were going to mention, and mm-hmm. that is just to the west of the shallow area, some mountains. So you could have, could possibly right. have some, you know, as you get down in elevation, you've got uh, rapidly rising cooling air and the mountains could have, uh, I guess you don't want to call them mountains, but they're, they're well, pretty significant. It changes in elevation yeah, significant from surrounding area. So it's, it, you know, there's, there's all types of, we come up with all types of scenarios. I was reading back to see um, if he had mentioned whether the seatbelt sign was on. He mentions that his seatbelt was fastened, but I don't see that the sign was on. So no, he said specifically that he didn't think that the seatbelt light was on. Yeah, so I, I, I think this is completely. Unexpected. But again, I've seen, I've flown with people that, you know, I can see where our path is going to take us, and we're coming in perhaps on descent, and we see some cumulonimbus clouds, or I've seen other airplanes like ahead of me. Then uh, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm sure that they're going to deviate around that. And then I see them get really, really close or even fly through it. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to do that. No, you know, I'm going to to yeah. deviate around that because I know that you don't have to necessarily be in that cumulonimbus cloud to experience some pretty significant turbulence. So, again, that might be part of education or perhaps experience. I don't know. Uh, but I just know that uh, there are times when I just say, to the person perhaps I'm even flying with, and I can see it's clear to me that they're not going to deviate. And I'm going to say, uh, we, yeah, we need to deviate. And 
you know, if it's not a, a significant deviation, I'll do my best to uh, tell air traffic control we're going to do it. But, you know, don't fly into that cloud. <laughs> but, right. You know, yeah. so you just got to be careful of these things and, and know yeah. that you don't have to be near or just near the cloud and the flow of air going around these cumulonimbus clouds is like a water in a stream or a river going around large boulders. Um, it can be perhaps even more turbulent than the flying right through the darn thing. And the other thing we need to remember is going over the top. Sometimes you try and judge whether you're going to go close to the top of a CB uh, or you're going to clear it. Uh, and when you get there, you don't have as much clearance as you expected or the CB's growing so fast, you know, particularly in the tropics. And I'm sure in the States you have areas where CB's grow at an incredible rate. What you thought was going to be, an easy miss, uh, like 30 miles away, when you actually get there, you find the damn clouds bubbling mm -hmm. up underneath you almost, and you need a, a good 5,000 feet vertically clear to get clear of any turbulence. So you can you can get uh, um, a big problem if you try and skim the top of one of these things as well. Yeah, and that was exactly the point I was trying to make. I mean, there's a good example from just the other day. I don't know if I actually posted it to Twitter or not. Maybe I will, the video of the uh, hail with the thunderstorm that we had the other day, which wasn't terribly impressive hail, but I, about an hour before that, I looked at uh, the weather. I looked at, checked the radar. Uh, there were some just kind of showers in the area, nothing that looked terrible. So I took the dog for a walk and we walked for about 30 minutes or so. And I was about to head down another street away from my house. And I looked up and I said, nope, that just, that just doesn't look very good. And I pulled the radar back up on my phone and out of nowhere this enormous thunderstorm had built in 30 minutes so and then as soon as i got it was perfect timing i walked through the door and it started raining right then and there and not five minutes later hail lightning the whole shebang so they, they can wow. build very fast yeah well yeah. that's typical of the, the south exactly yeah southern half from pretty much from uh, all the way to the rocky mountains throughout the entire central part of the united states all the way to the east coast i mean they build rapidly so but uh, you know we're monday morning quarterback in this we mm -hmm. we weren't really there um but yeah. you know based on our experience and that's what i think the question really was is based on our experience what do we think i think we've pretty much covered that and so um so at least kevin got a free drink yes <laughs> all over his lap well i just yep. have to say the airbus you know it's, <laughs> it's a, a weakling so if it was a mad dog then it, well, we, there would have been no sense far. of broke we would have we would have not any sensors breaking or it's no, feeling no, you hurt. just buckled and you wouldn't know about it. Okay, <laughs> All right. let's compare. There's a di big difference between a Volkswagen and a tank, and we 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 drive the tank or you go. Okay. So, all right, time out. Raise your big gun. <laughs> Okay, here we go. We're going to move on. Moving on. Moving on, as Matt Smith says. Hey, uh, this is a great time, I think, for this week's installment of that great segment of the show. Perhaps the best. Me speaking? No. No. The old pilot plane tales. Darn it. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> the old pilot's plane tales. 100 years. On the 1st of April 2018, the Royal Air Force celebrates 100 years as the world's oldest independent air force. Yep, 
it was also April Fool's Day, which, I feel, was very apt for the formation of the junior service. Whilst rank structure was modified from the navies, it was an army officer, the first commander of the Royal Flying Corps, who asked his men to come up with a motto for the new Air Force. Two of his junior officers were walking from the number one officer's mess at Farnborough to Cody's shed on Laffin Plain. As they walked, they discussed the problem of the motto, and Lieutenant J.S. Yule mentioned the phrase Sic Aitur ad Astra from Virgil. He then expanded on this with the phrase Per Ardua ad Astra, which he translated as through struggles to the stars. Colonel Sykes approved and forwarded it to the War Office, which then submitted it to the King, who approved its adoption. In fact, it seems that Yule may have read it in a book called The People of the Mist by Sir Henry Ryder Haggard. In the first chapter was the passage, To his right were two stately gates of iron fantastically wrought, supported by stone pillars, on whose summit stood griffins of black marble, embracing coats of arms and banners inscribed with the device Per Ardua Ad Astra. The official translation has always been Through Adversity to the Stars. The heraldic emblem of the Royal Air Force is an eagle, superimposed on a circlet, surmounted by a crown and was based on a design created by a tailor at Geeves and Hawks, the famous military tailors of Number 1 Savile Row. Of interest, Hawks was previously employed by old Mel Meredith, who tailored the uniform that Admiral Lord Nelson was wearing when he was killed in action aboard HMS Victory during the Battle of Trafalgar. The location of the shop was chosen to be close to the Royal Geographical Society because they dressed so many Victorian explorers. The tailors gained many royal warrants, the first in 1809. Their customer list included such names as the Duke of Wellington, Michael Jackson, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. All I could afford from them was my RAF service dress hat. The emblem created for the Royal Air Force was also adopted as the basis for the badges of the Australian, New Zealand, Canadian, Indian, Pakistan and South African Air Forces. The first uniform of the RAF was described by Marshal of the Royal Air Force John Slesser as a nasty pale blue with a lot of gold over it, which brings irresistibly to mind a vision of the gentleman who stands outside the cinema. A year later, the Air Ministry replaced it with the blue-grey colour, which has remained in use to this day. A rumour of the time was that the cloth for the new uniform had been destined for Russian soldiers during the First World War, but sold cheap to the RAF when that market unexpectedly closed following the Russian Revolution. It was as the First World War concluded that Field Marshal Jan Smuts was tasked with studying the impact that air power had made on the conflict and present his findings to the Imperial War Cabinet. 
On his recommendation 100 years ago, the two British flying services, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service, were combined. The newly formed military service became the most powerful air force in the world, with over 20,000 aircraft and 300,000 personnel, and came under the command of the man who is known as the father of the Royal Air Force, Sir Hugh Trenchard, the first Chief of the Air Staff. As the newspapers of the time commented, In the employment of the planes, a limitless vista opens before the Air Minister. When General Maud has taken Baghdad, it was by aeroplanes raining fire on the Turkish army, as it poured northwards up the Tigris bank, that he completed the route that has put us in secure possession of the whole Baghdad Villette. And in the present tremendous struggle, nothing is more significant than the accounts of the havoc played by our airmen amongst the dense German reinforcements converging on the front. It is clear that, given enough aeroplanes to pour a massive and continuous fire on the German routes to the battle line, we could have made the present offensive largely futile. The main task of this new force was to police the British Empire from the skies. Air power was much more cost-effective when compared with the cost of deploying ground units, particularly in the remote areas of Iraq, Afghanistan and Somaliland, where they put down a rebellion by the dervishes. Despite a growing role for the junior of the three services, following the armistice, defence cuts started to impact, and for nine months the RAF had to wait and see if it would be retained at all. By the end of 1919, the service had been reduced to a strength of only 35,500 men. During the interwar period, the fledgling Air Force had to fight for survival. In order to win over the general public, it spent considerable efforts to keep itself in the eye of the British people. Events such as the Hendon Air Show became famous, and it was here, on the edge of London, that the air pageant revealed the latest fighters and displayed the talents of the RAF's best squadrons. The antics flown were designed to amaze and thrill, and mishaps weren't unusual, particularly when formation aerobatics were being performed with the aircraft tied together with bunting. Hundreds and thousands would come to gaze at the aerial spectacle, which usually concluded with an attack on a huge mock-up of a barracks or a ship or military vehicles which were attacked and blown up, scattering debris everywhere. Britain's giant airship, the R-101, is flying over the aerodrome now. Gives rather a fine idea of the evolutions that they're performing. The catapult is operated by two compressed air engines, each less in size than an ordinary house dustbin. Flight officer V. Hugh Williams crashed in a tutor plane while giving a demonstration of what not to do. The plane was wrecked, but the pilot escaped injury. And something like half a million people are estimated to have seen it this year. However, after the war to end all wars, the government was in no mood to spend more on armament. There was no serious threat on the horizon and cuts were made. 
Even Winston Churchill, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, agreed that Britain would have ten years to rearm should a threat appear. It wasn't until the early 1930s that a reassessment was made, and after the Italian action against Abyssinia and the German reoccupation of the Rhineland, the Cabinet decided that it had to match the Luftwaffe with new equipment. However, when the invasion of Poland forced Britain into World War II, the situation was bleak. It wasn't just equipment that was in short supply, it was also men. It was the men of the Commonwealth who came to the defence of Britain, as well as many other countries, such as Poland. They did much to bolster the RAF and barely in time. The Battle of Britain became a defining period of the RAF's existence. In perhaps the most prolonged and complicated air campaign in history, they held off the Luftwaffe. As the war progressed, it was the RAF who took the fight to Germany with its massive bombing campaign, including such noteworthy raids as Operation Millennium against Cologne, Chastise against the dams of the Ruhr Valley, Gomorrah against Hamburg and Berlin, and Carthage against the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen, just to name a few. After the end of World War II, the RAF was drawn into the Arab-Israeli War. Due to the confused circumstances of the 1948 Middle East conflict, the RAF found itself fighting first the Egyptian Air Force, then the Jewish militias, and later the nascent Israeli Air Force. On the 22nd of May, the Egyptians attacked RAF Ramat David. Two Royal Egyptian Air Force Spitfires strafed aircraft of No. 32 Squadron and No. 208 Squadron on the ground. Flying officer Jeff Cooper and Roy Bowie took off in their Spitfire Mark 18s to mount a standing patrol. Three Egyptian Spitfires launched a second attack, two of which were shot down by Cooper and Bowie. Flying officers Mikel Hoare and Hully took over the standing patrol before the third wave of Egyptian Spitfires arrived. Flying officer Mikhail War shot both of these down. The air became somewhat chillier for the RAF as the Cold War started, and the first action was to help feed the people of Berlin during the airlift. This combined operation helped save both the people and the independence of Berlin against the Soviet blockade. By the end, the RAF had transported over half a million tons of supplies to the beleaguered German people. Although the United Kingdom did not base any RAF squadrons in Korea during the Korean War, 41 RAF officers were seconded to serve with the United States Air Force and several RAF pilots saw action, mainly flying F-86 Sabres. They were credited with seven kills. At least one pilot was killed when his F-84E Thunderjet was shot down by anti-aircraft fire on the 2nd of January 1952 as he attempted to strafe a column of trucks near Sunsan, a village north of Pyongyang. Other RAF pilots flew meteors in the Royal Australian Air Force squadrons on ground support attacks. The 50s, 60s and 70s saw the RAF committed to the defence of the United Kingdom and the support of NATO during the Cold War. 
a large percentage of Britain's nuclear deterrent was invested in the three V-bombers, the Valiant, the Victor and the Vulcan. The UK developed its own nuclear weapons manufacturer, and even after the introduction of the Polaris submarines, nuclear-capable squadrons were maintained in West Germany. In other areas of conflict, the RAF saw action in the Malayan emergency, the Mau Mau conflict in Kenya, the Suez crisis, and the Confrontasi against Indonesia. Harriers were also deployed to Belize to protect it from the territorial claims of Guatemala. However, with the decline of the British Empire, military commitments in the Far East were reduced, and eventually the RAF's Far East Air Force was disbanded in 1971. The 1980s saw the start of the Falklands War, with the need to deploy aircraft to recapture the islands from Argentinian forces who had invaded this distant British overseas territory. A mammoth effort, it involved the RAF flying alongside the fleet air-armed Sea Harriers in support of the task force that was sailing over 8,000 miles to recapture the islands. RAF pilots shot down five Argentinian aircraft. In addition, during the Black Butt raids, the aging Vulcan force, supported by Victor Edaway refueling tankers with Nimrods in support, flew the 4,000 miles between Ascension Island and the Falkland Islands, there and back again, to attack the main airfield at Stanley. To this day, the RAF maintains a fighter presence on the Falklands, now with typhoons, but before that, the F-3 Tornado, and before that, F-4 Phantoms. In the 1990s, during the build-up to the Gulf War, RAF fighters were based all over the Middle East. Over 100 aircraft took part in almost every conceivable role. Fighters enforced no-fly zones, Reconnaissance aircraft, using state-of-the-art equipment, flew at night hunting scuds, and support aircraft flew record levels of hours. The RAF also operated over the Balkans during Operation Deny Flight. F-3 Tornadoes and AWACS aircraft policed the airspace, and the Kosovo War saw the RAF fight over Europe for the first time since the Second World War. Harrier GR-7s and Tornado Grand Attack aircraft operated over the former Yugoslavia flying bombing missions. More recently, the RAF supported the invasion of Afghanistan with refueling tankers, support helicopters, Harriers and GR4 tornadoes. In addition, the RAF flew tornadoes, typhoons, Nimrod, AWACS, VC-10s and Tristars as part of the NATO intervention in Libya. When it formed, the RAF had over 300,000 men, but during its heyday, during the Second World War, that had risen to over 1 million servicemen. Currently, the Air Force can barely muster 30,000 regular servicemen. Although its operational fast jet force is the smallest it's ever been, it can still boast over 160 Eurofighter Typhoons and F-35 Lightning IIs. In addition, it has many other aircraft like E-3D Sentry AWACS, A-400M Atlas Transports, Airbus Voyager Tankers, 
C-17A Globemasters, C-130J Hercules, plus a few RC-135 rivet joints and MQ-9 Reapers kicking around, not forgetting, of course, its large force of support helicopters and training aircraft. The RAF is still a fighting force to be reckoned with. I recently caught up with Sir Glenn Torpy, who was, only a few years ago, the Chief of the Air Staff. He was kind enough to give me his thoughts on the upcoming anniversary. It's been a fascinating story. It really has. And if you, if you look back to Trenchard's vision and the way he established the force, he could clearly see from very early on that air power was going to change the nature of conflict. And that's been proven over the hundred years. But probably didn't realise it at the stage. But some of the underpinning principles in which he established the Air Force. He realised that it was going to rely on technology and he realised it was going to rely on highly skilled people to use that technology, either to operate it or to support it. So you know, he established um, RAF Cranwell, he established the apprentice uh, training scheme at RAF Halton and that's been really the bedrock of the RAF from day one. He also recruited people from across society, and I think that's been a characteristic of the Air Force as well. So, you know, as I look at what we're going to be doing, what the current Air Force is going to be doing over the course of 2018, I mean, they have coined the phrase, they're going to commemorate, mm. they're going to celebrate, but actually the most important bit, they're going to inspire future generations, um, both to be involved with air power in terms of military air power, but also air, the aerospace industry. So a huge amount of effort going into, into STEM activities. This is all focused on the youngsters, and I think that's absolutely right. But it's going to be you know, 100 aircraft fly past over London. It's going to be a big parade in London to commemorate um, the world's first independent air force. And there's some fantastic stories out there. You know, the individuals, the equipment. Um, so I think it's going to be a great year. With wow. to the Central Band of the Royal Air Force for the music, the RAF March Past. <laughs> Caught you out there. <laughs> you did. <laughs> That's okay. Brilliant. 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 <laughs> That's all right. Again, I'll fix it in post. <laughs> the, the beauty of multi-track recording. <laughs> ah, I love it. It hides all kinds of errors. Wow, that was really, truly another awesome one. Captain Nick, you just keep on coming up with them. That's oh, awesome. Thanks, Jeff. I'm looking forward to this year. It's uh, you know a chance to for us uh, ex-RAF blokes to really indulge ourselves. I mean, uh, I'm sure other air forces will have their uh, centenaries uh, coming up, but we're the first. Well. Yay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think we should keep going here to try to knock out as many of these uh, items in the feedback folder as we can. Although uh, it's clear to me now, based on how long we've been going, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to do it, but we're going to give it a go. Uh, faster. Yes. We'll just talk faster. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how about some... Audio feedback, and this is pretty good. Uh, actually, it's not audio feedback. It's it's some feedback sent in that refers to a video, <laughs> and 
Dimitri sent in. He says, a new pilot celebrates his first landing. <laughs> so uh, he has a link here. I found another link uh, to a slightly different version of this video uh, on Facebook. But uh, anyway, let's take a, a listen to the audio only. And, and you'll have to watch it to, to get a real full impact from it. Everyone, I just want to say I landed my first aircraft today. Yes! <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you. They thought I could do it, but I did it. 70,000 altitude. I was up there. I, I called in the tower. They said I was hot. I'm Perry Perry sauce hot. Yeah, it was Dana. I was going to say, that's today. how you guys celebrate when you yes, <laughs> That was my first successful landing. <laughs> so so this guy to set it up, again, you have to watch the video, but uh, it's like some people coming off, they're deplaning from the jet bridge. And uh, first, this flight attendant is right ahead of this guy in a pilot's uniform. Obviously not a real pilot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Real pilots can't dance. Yeah. True. That doesn't have that kind of rhythm. Uh, but you'll see in the videos when you watch them uh, that the flight attendant that was in front of this guy uh, with her roller bag, uh, there was a, a, a camera mounted in it and like shooting upward. Uh, so that was one of the camera angles. And there was somebody else kind of been waiting in the gate area, taking this video of this guy. And, and of course, you know, a couple other clues that perhaps this was not a real thing. He said he was at 70,000 altitude. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. 70,000 altitude. My mom is I landed the plane and I didn't break it and, and didn't hurt anyone <laughs> or <laughs> language to that effect. I cleaned that up grammatically, actually. Um, but it sounded uh, like it came from the, 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 uh, the movie Soul Plane. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, we have to uh, also acknowledge is I think he was wearing captain's stripes and. I'm not positive about that part of it, but uh, it, this would not be the first time that he had landed an, an airplane, <laughs> uh, even if he were a first officer uh, flying for an airline. But anyway, it was very funny, uh, yep. very clever little spoof. And again, uh, it was uh, on a couple of different sites, and I'll put both of those in the show notes so you can watch it and really laugh, because I laughed out loud when I saw it. That was pretty funny. And just to see the looks on the people, almost like a flash mob. You remember the flash yeah. mobs they used to do? Yeah. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. people start looking around going, what, what is uh, going on what here? What God's green earth is happening <laughs> kind of, here? He was his own flash mob, basically. Flash with no mob. Anyway. A one-person yeah, a one person. I, I can assure you, if I tried to dance like that, my pants would split. <laughs> that would make it even funnier. Actually, that would actually that really would be a flash. <laughs> yes. Truly, yes, yes. Uh, let's see. If here. you have a microscope, Gus writes, uh, "Hello, APG crew and community. This is Gus from Argentina. I've been listening to the podcast for more than a year now. I also try to send very interesting feedback in the past." But I think I was a victim of the system glitch that made some of the feedback disappear. Hmm. I don't remember. That's what Jeff called it anyway. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's a glitch. If I get lucky enough this time, it will be my first aired feedback. Okay, so you know, when you when you send in feedback like that, you know, then there's it's, there's a, probably a good shot that we're going to cover it. Uh, but you know what? Honestly, Gus, I don't remember any other feedback from you. I can go in there and look for it, but uh, I do apologize if for some reason it didn't get to the feedback folder. Uh, whatever. Uh, let's see. Um, sometimes, you know, if you send it to the wrong address, you know, it won't get to us. I'm not sure if you use the app or the uh, website to send it, but, uh, anywho, regardless, I've been a private pilot for more than 15 years, just flying for fun and decided to start working on my commercial license, hoping to have everything ready by the end of this year. The main reason I'm sending this feedback is to let the community know that I'll be traveling to Lakeland, Florida in a few weeks to attend the Sun and Fun Air Show that will take place between April 10th and April 15th. If any of you will be there, look for me in Slack and let me know. I'd love to meet some of you in person. That's all for now, but I'm sure I'll have more news to share with you in the near future. Happy flights. Gus from Argentina. And I guess again, um, sorry we didn't get the feedback before, but I'm glad this one made it through. And I hope that people listening, if they're planning on heading over to Sun and Fun in Lakeland, Florida, I know that um, that uh, Dispatcher Mike went last year and covered much of it in his podcast. I'm not sure if he's planning on going the, again this year or not. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll have to see. But uh, again, uh, when you're there, Gus, make sure that you. Uh, Take, you know, use your phone and record some audio for us, and we'll uh, certainly uh, try to get it played on the show. And uh, that's about all I have to say. I'm sure there will be community members there. Yeah. Um, I will not be there, sadly, but uh, I have no doubt that there will be some folks there who would like to meet up. So, Yeah, I won't be there as well. I yeah. will not be there as well. Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to make it this year. Uh, but anyway, I know we have lots of people in this community that uh, probably will. So let us know. I'm going. Yeah, no, I'm there not, you go. No, I'm not really. Nick's going to fly his general aviation airplane over from <laughs> London. <laughs> Four fueling stops later. Yeah. Hey, moving on. Paul writes, Captain Nick. This is only addressed to Captain Nick. So listen, Captain Nick. Oh, I, do I have to? Yeah. I came across this video on YouTube and thought you, being a Phantom pilot, would bring back some fond memories for you. And he sends us a link from YouTube, and I took a little snippet of the audio from this at the very beginning. The Phantom, one of Britain's most powerful sky weapons, worth two million pounds. The pilot is Chris Kemp. To achieve command has taken him three years. It has meant endless study, intensive training, constant practice. He has gone through the toughest selection process to be found in any career. Whatever the aircraft, all flying calls for special ability and flair. But to handle a plane with the power of the Phantom demands much, much more. And that's what this film is all about. There you go. That's from, saved from 1973. <laughs> now you're flying. Actually, I, you're flying I, that in the 80s, right? 
Uh, yeah, I uh, I joined the Air Force in '74. My training took me uh, it took four and a half years to get operational. So I was uh, on the squadron uh, late '78. So uh, oh, uh, too this many years is so after close this was to my training. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only slight difference was uh, when this guy, uh, the training that they're showing there, they, the Phantom was still in the uh, mixed role of air defense and ground attack. When I got to it, it was purely uh, designated a, an air defense aircraft. So we didn't do any of the ground attack stuff that the Phantom was shown doing there. But other than that, that's almost identical to what I did. Even, I mean, that parade ground where that drill sergeant is drilling all these officer cadets is exactly the parade <laughs> ground that I was marched around for so many hours. And where there's that, at the beginning of it, there's a, there's a, a, big old lightning there and it was actually one of the prototypes it wasn't an operational lightning it was one of the original prototypes and uh, that was the grass area uh, just behind the playground around that lightning we planted tulip bulbs now our squadron was colored yellow squadron we planted uh, not tulip bulbs they were daffodils uh, in the and we planted rows and rows of these bulbs uh, in our a course number, I think it was 102 or something. And then we disappeared off. And like four, four, four months later, when spring sprung, number 102 leapt out of the <laughs> oh, that's <grass>. awesome. <laughs> out of this perfect lawn, which we thought was a, a neat trick. But, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I have to uh, reflect the sentiments of Jennifer. Toughest selection process. Then how did Nick get in? Yeah, I, and that's well, what I was thinking. It's, it's how no who, who did you pay off? Process is 100 percent uh, Jen. So you know, I was just <laughs> the lucky one that got through <laughs> through the crack. Who, who did who did, who did you pay were, off? That's what I want to know. Yeah, well, I, don't know. I didn't have to. And I just you know, I just when they weren't looking, I I slipped in the back <laughs> of the classroom. <laughs> yeah, but he must he must you know he's supposed to be here apparently. Apparently. All right. So uh, again, link to the uh, the entire um, program documentary in it's called RAF Phantom Pilot Training from circa 1973. Check it out. Uh, Orson writes in. He says, "I'm just looking at QF9 departing on the first revenue nonstop flight from Perth, uh, Western Australia, to London, UK, with a scheduled flight time of around 17 hours and 30 minutes." That must be in excess of any existing uh, FTL flight t time limits, maybe flight time limits. Flight time limitations. So how do the Australian aviation authorities circumvent this? Well, it's called augmented cruise, right, Nick? Yeah, so it's not actually in excess of flight time limitations because there is an absolute limit. Um, but uh, the normal limit for two pilots will be below that. However, you can augment uh, your crew, additional pilots, which means the pilots operating can go and rest. And uh, by resting, they increase their flight time uh, limit to the point where they can accomplish the flight. In fact, they can go um, off the top of my head up to like 21 hours, but I'm just going to go and check now to see if that's right or not. So give, give me a moment. I'll come back to you. Yeah, it's something, something you know, in the... 20-hour range, 21, something like that, yeah. Yeah, you guys have slightly different uh, rules to us. Yeah. We're ER, so remember. Okay, that's true. All right, well, while you look that up, Nick, we're going to keep pressing on and try to knock as many of these out as we can. Uh, Nick and Will 
uh, wrote in, uh, Nick Kidd from the Isle of Wight. I was listening to ABG 313 and the debate centered around why the pilot sits on the left. I believe it to be a continuation of the convention established by the American automotive industry to seat the driver on the left. Mm, but they were sitting on the left. Well, anyway, I think the left was selected as a result of the need to have the stronger and more dexterous arm available to operate the gears and brake lever, which required some significant effort at the time. Boarding on the port side of the aircraft probably was a result of the doors being originally located to allow access for the pilot. Hmm. I don't know about that. Maybe. I don't know about this either. Um, You know what? Actually, the answer is nobody knows. But uh, continuing with Will's uh, supposition, fellas, could it be that the captain slash pilot in command sits in the left seat so they can maintain sight of the runway while flying the standard left-hand traffic pattern? This would have been a no-brainer when planes evolved from tandem to side-by-side seating. That's my thinking for the origin of the tradition. Here's hoping this helps with the quest for 51% accuracy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Well, we're, we need all the help we can get. Um, I, any commentary, anybody? I I mean, I think we can talk about it until we're blue in the face. Yeah. I think we could come up with a lot of guesses and I think we could probably shoot holes in most of them. Um, yeah, but you know, why does any convention come to be? Sometimes it's not always based on, a sound logical principle. Right. So I would, I would, I would tend to dispel what Will has to say. Cause I think traffic patterns were around before or, you know, I don't think it had anything to do with where you sit in the airplane. Yeah. But I think that if you had a right hand traffic pattern, you know, non-standard pattern, then they'd probably get, they'd probably switch seats. So the cabinet could be sitting on the right side. No, wait, that's not right. Never mind. Oy. We can go around and around on this one. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's quickly go on. Brian, uh, you remember we talked about the uh, news item a couple of episodes ago, I believe now, uh, the uh, tragic helicopter uh, crash into the uh, East River in uh, New York City. And Brian sends us some audio feedback regarding that. Hello, airline pilot guide crew. This is Brian from Katy, Texas. Listening to your latest episode, uh, and which are discussing the helicopter crash in New York, uh, one thing I wanted to shed some light on, I've been in several helicopter rides uh, going offshore into the Gulf of Mexico, and it is not a uh, trivial exercise. We have a, we have a lot of training that we go through for water survival and uh, exiting, the, exiting the helicopter. Even with uh, these are normal harnesses where you can get to it from the front, uh, so it's not when you're in that panic situation of hitting the water. It is not. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, one of the, and then you also mentioned the uh, emergency flotation devices on the helicopter. Most of the time, they they keep the, they they will keep the helicopter afloat, not necessarily. Upright. Uh, main thing, at least in the Gulf, is they don't want the helicopter sinking to the bottom. Uh, you have a chance of getting out if you are, or when, when you get out to close to the surface, you can make it back to the surface. Uh, chances of it actually landing on the skids and staying upright is uh, fairly minimal. 
so they really, in my, in my experience, they, they were not, they were told that they were not to keep it upright, but was to keep it close to the surface. Um, and lastly, even when it does capsize, you become, I mean, I, you become very disoriented in what, which way is which. Um, in order to actually move, you really do need to keep, and this is what we're trained in, you need to keep the, uh, to stay in your seat until the cabin fills with water before you attempt to move out. Otherwise, you will not be able to successfully uh, navigate your way out of the uh, helicopter. Uh, so, obviously, these people did not have any of that training, plus the harnesses, so there's other issues going on. But even if they had the harnesses available where they could get them out, it would still have been a difficult situation for them is... Uh, my my personal opinion. Um, have a good day. All right. Thank you, Brian, for taking the time to call the Airline Pilot Guy feedback line, the Google voice number we have set up, uh, 304-997-4568, I think. I'm not sure. It's 99pilot. We haven't had anybody use that for a while. Most people use SpeakPipe or record something and, and attach it to their uh, email. Um but uh, okay, I've got an answer by the way. Okay, or right. okay. Uh, now in the European rules, uh, the maximum normal flight duty period is fourteen hours. Um, however, within flight rest, you can extend that to eighteen hours uh, by having uh, three hours fifty minutes in class one rest. Um, and um, although, yeah, that's right. Although um, the twenty-one hours is permitted, but that's uh, with commander's discretion on top. But you can certainly get even in EASA rules, and I don't think uh, Australians work to that. They have their own set of flight time limitations. Yeah. Uh, even, even under EASA with flight rest, you can get above uh, seventeen hours thirty minutes. So it's very likely that they have rules similar that allow it as long as you have a relief yeah. crew and you have the proper rest. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Um, it has. Oh, let's go back to Brian. He took the time to do that. Um, he mentioned, you know, going through all the training, and then obviously the people that were on this uh, photo shoot didn't have the extensive training that uh, many do, as Brian has, uh, and they had a different kind of harness that released from the front. And interestingly, the uh, the floaty things. What did I call them? The <laughs> the, the, the floaty, floaty things. skid floaty things. things. Um, <laughs> apparently. Floaty. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It really is not to keep the thing upright on the skids. Although if you do it, maybe if you do it properly and get lucky, you'll stay that way. It's more to keep the helicopter from sinking. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, anyway, thanks Brian for those, for that perspective uh, regarding uh, the, uh, the helicopter stuff. And then it has come to my attention that I skipped. I didn't mean to uh, number five in our feedback list. And this comes from Scott, and he says, I don't know if you guys remember hearing about this. Oh, yeah. In fact, we talked about it. Uh, but we're coming up on the, oh, I guess we didn't come up. We didn't, uh, we've talked about it on, in, in previous episodes, but mm-hmm. this happened long before uh, podcasting was even <laughs> somebody's idea. Um, and we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of this. Uh, basically, what happened was that the mayor of Chicago at the time, Richard Daly, had a construction crew bulldoze large X's on the lone runway at night. The proper notice was not given to the FAA, 
so planes got left stranded at the airport since there was no way for them to take off. I've included a link to a news article from back when this happened and to the Wikipedia article about Miggs Field. So this was Miggs Field, which is uh, right there on the waterfront, uh, downtown Chicago, Chicago. Illinois. <laughs> and uh, and then he sent a link to the, uh, the article. And Steph, I know that you... Um, have spent some time in Chicago and uh, perhaps you have something to say about yeah, this. Yeah, I grew up in Chicago and, um, oh, sorry, is my, I feel like my internet is not great at the moment because I just opened something. Nope, you're fine. I'm okay. Okay. Just making sure. Um, no, I grew up in Chicago and, you know, going downtown all the time and uh, being on the lakeshore there. And it was always just a part of Chicago seeing aircraft, mostly small general aviation aircraft, um, taking off landing right there on the waterfront. And it's really, it was really just an awesome part of the city. Um, and yeah, he's absolutely, you know, uh, mentions exactly what happened. Basically, um, after September 11th, Mayor Daly had this idea that he did not want an airport um, basically operating so close to all the large skyscrapers that are right in downtown Chicago. He thought that was a safety security risk. And there was a lot of contention back and forth. And it basically ended with him bringing bulldozers to the airport in the middle of the night and basically tearing up the runway by gouging these big X's into the, the runway. Stranded a, uh, quite a few aircraft there that had landed the day before. Um, and, you know, whether that was helpful for safety and security, probably largely debatable because there was an operating Class D control tower at the airport at the time, which effectively made all of that airspace controlled airspace. And when he closed the airport, that went away, and that airspace does not fall within uh, O'Hare's airspace, Midway's airspace, the other two large airports in the area. So went back to being basically uncontrolled airspace. So no one has to talk to anyone to fly up and down the lakefront there anymore, or the uh, the shore. So. so you can almost argue that it's less secure less. and less safe now. Exactly. And that was a lot of, you know, the, the big arguments after the fact, but... Long story short, they did not reopen Migsfield as an airport. It is now a park, and they hold concerts there. And it's very sad to me, personally. Well, it's sad for us <laughs> who are aviation enthusiasts. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. What to the meal. aircraft that couldn't get airborne? That could uh, they, did, ripped off. they did all get out of there within the next few days um, by taking off on the parallel taxiway. Oh, right. Oh, good yeah. Lord. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, actually, uh, some other interesting things about, uh, or at least things that are interesting to me, if you want to watch a really cool video, you can watch, um, for anyone who's been to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, there is a actual United Airlines 727 uh, on display within the museum itself. That aircraft was landed at Miggs Field, um, and then it was actually taken on a barge across Lake Michigan and prepared for its display at the uh, museum and then barged back across and into the, the museum, but they landed it there and there's video of it. And it's pretty impressive because the runway length at Miggs Field is, was not very long, like less than 4,000 feet. <laughs> so um, wow. I forget, maybe 3,500 off the top of my head. Um, maybe even shorter than that. I forget, but I like that video. It's uh, maybe we'll find a link to it and put it in the show notes too. Cause I think it's interesting if you haven't seen it. But, okay. Yes. Yeah, so if you find that stuff, uh, send it to me and we'll make sure it gets in mm -hmm. the, well, I'll attempt to and remember. Also, to if you're in, in Chicago, go to the uh, Museum of Science and Industry and check out that 727 because it's a pretty cool display. So. Awesome. All right. Quickly, number 12. 
Mark. Hi, longtime listener. First feedback. I live in Atlanta. Have met Jeff and Nick in a meet at PDK a couple of years ago. Always want to meet again, but work and life never let me. I was a pilot in Brazil before coming to the USA, as our lovely doctor knows, flying a GA plane in our checks. The flaps is always one of them, together with the flight control checks. Why are the flaps not checked in an airliner? Thanks a lot, and please give up the good work. So I'm not really sure what he means that the flaps aren't. Do we have flaps? Yeah, we do have, yeah, flaps. We have flaps. Do we ever check them? Well, yeah. Well, you, you know, when you do. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so on a Cessna 172 and even the Piper Warrior, which I'm familiar with, both of those uh, exclusively have numerous hours in both of those. What you would do on your pre flight walk around is you would go ahead and extend the flaps into their landing position. So you, you really, you, you're checking the hinges in there, and you're also checking. Um, the linkages that you you know control the position of the flaps. Um, so I think that's what he may be in reference to. I, I think that's what he means. Yeah, you actually extend the flaps and then go visually check. You, you and, check and check the them. Flaps. You check and there's you know there's basically a uh, you know extension rod that is what puts the, the position of the flaps into the position. From, you know, uh, we do actually check, check the flaps. We just don't extend them into their landing position. Of course, unless you're on a mad dog, which has a tendency for the flaps and slats to droop, and you do get a really nice look at them. But you don't actually have to extend them to have a good idea whether they're going to work or not. So Because we have sensors, we have uh, sensors that are built in. And and given, we have indications in our cockpit panel that correct. shows us what the position of the flaps are and if there's any... You know, uh, if they're out of sync or whatever the correct uh, term is, I can't think of right now. But uh, asymmetric, asymmetric uh, ex- extension or whatever, flap, yeah. flaps extension, which you'll feel if it comes out the wrong way. But mm-hmm. so I, th- I think that Mark, that answers your question. Uh, we don't have to extend them to check the linkages like you do on the uh, on the general aviation airplanes. All right, enough said. Um. Have some audio feedback. Let's see how are we doing. We're about two forty-eight, about getting close to three hours. Let's uh, listen to let's let's see. Thomas wrote, writes first. Hey there, APG crew. Just wanted to drop you a line regarding a double-barreled question I had recently. It was too long for speak pipe, so I will attach the file below. Hopefully, it's not too long for our show today. I'm not sure. I didn't write down the the time on it. Uh, interested to hear your thoughts on the subject. I'm also attaching some of my photos. For our very own professional photographer, Captain Nick, I thought I would include some F-18s as well as the Breitling jet team on their first ever North American team. They are the only team from outside the U.S. I've had the opportunity to photograph. Thanks for all your time and dedication to the great show. And again, this is Thomas Merriman. And I'm not sure where he doesn't say right there. Maybe he says in his feedback. So take it away, Thomas. Hey, APG crew, this is Thomas, another case of longtime listener, first-time caller, and total victim of APG syndrome. But uh, I just wanted to write in, or I guess technically call in, for lack of a better term to y'all, and uh, pose a question to y'all. I apologize right off the bat for the kind of terrible audio quality, but I am currently in my truck and wanted to pose this question to you as I'm on this road trip, and my truck is actually the reason that I thought of this question in the first place. My truck has a lane departure system in it, 
wherein if I start to veer from one side of the lane to the other and the truck thinks that I'm going to lose, you know, lose my lane, so to speak, that it will take over and actually correct the steering slightly to keep the vehicle in the lane. And the reason I know that this input is happening is because when the computer takes over, the wheels obviously move, but then the steering wheel moves to reflect this input. So even though I, as the driver, am not making the input, the steering wheel that I can visualize makes that movement. And this sounds kind of odd, but the reason I bring this up is because it got me thinking about the difference between, dare I say, the difference between Boeing and Airbus and a question I wanted to pose about that. And hopefully no one's going to throw punches over this, but I was just curious to uh, hear your thoughts and hear your discussions on the pros and the cons of both systems. And I do believe there certainly are positive and negative um, implications for both systems. But in the case of the Boeing, when I think of the Boeing, I think of personally the 737, the iconic to me trim wheel just spinning away as the autopilot trims out the aircraft. And that being a control surface or a, a control input device that, while not being controlled by the pilots, is still able to be visualized by the pilots as the autopilot controls it. And what I'm saying there is basically, do you think that it is advantageous for an aircraft to physically move the input devices in order for a pilot to be able to see the inputs and the movements that an autopilot is making on the control surfaces out on the wings. Meaning, you know, if an aircraft is banking or if it is uh, pitching to see those movements reflected in the yoke rather than the autopilot just, you know, in a fly-by-wire system making adjustments to the surfaces on the outside of the aircraft without reflecting those on the actual input uh, surfaces that the pilot has available to them. So obviously in Boeing aircraft or really in any flyby cable system, you would be able to see these movements where in flyby wire, you're not going to visualize those movements. And at least to the best of my knowledge. Now I'll be the first to admit, I do not have a great background on the Airbus side of things. Uh, I certainly don't know as much about the background of Airbus I've learned a lot from Captain Nick, but unfortunately, I still have a lot to learn in that area. The other question kind of based off of that that I would like to pose and hear y'all talk about is um, in a former life and in just kind of my general personality, I am always a worst case scenario type of planner. And I've always been curious about the implications of a sympathetic stick versus a non-sympathetic stick, meaning... You know, in, if I'm flying in a Boeing aircraft or if I'm flying in the Mad Dog and Captain Jeff were to pull back on the yoke, Captain Jeff pulls back on the yoke and I know, he's sitting in the seat opposite him, I know exactly how much pressure, back pressure he is putting on the yoke and I know where we are at on the full range of movement. You know, if he's putting in partial pressure, full pressure, whatever the case may be. Whereas I'm not able to tell that by visualizing the stick on my side of the cockpit. If I were flying alongside Captain Nick in his Airbus, the the stick, at least to the best of my understanding, is not sympathetic to the movements of the stick on the other seat. So I do not know the inputs being made by the other pilot. 
Now, obviously, this isn't going to be an issue in a normal flying situation. But again, like I said, I'm kind of a worst case scenario plan for the, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, in an emergency situation or in a situation where the aircraft is making unplanned, you know, uh, movements and you're having to kind of counteract these things, would it not be more advantageous for you to be able to understand what your pilot flying is doing so that you can check them on, you know, their inputs, their reactions to what's happening, and also just to kind of, you're able to visually understand that subconsciously without having to divert all your attention to looking to see what inputs they're making on the stick. So if there's a yoke in front of me and it's moving, even if I am devoted to other tasks, I can understand if the other pilot, the pilot flying, is putting in, you know, what control surface he is uh, affecting, what inputs he's making. But with the uh, Airbus, that's not going to be the case, at least to the best of my understanding, as the stick itself is not going to be uh, showing me what movements are being made by the other pilot. But again, like I said, I don't know that this would ever be an issue. I don't know that this would ever be something of importance. Um, but in the case of, you know, something in an emergency where things are happening very quickly and maybe you're not able to verbalize what's going on, but it might be advantageous to just kind of be, you know, that second set of eyes in the cockpit and be checking the inputs and the reactions of your other pilot. Would it not be better to be in a system where you can see those actions without having to devote your attention to that? And is there a system in place like that where you can see all of the inputs, you know, specific to each control surface um, for the autopilot? Or is there a place where you can visualize the pressure and the, in, the different inflections that are being given on the stick of the opposite pilot? Um, I certainly don't know the answer to those questions. I'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback. Thanks again for a great show. And uh, this is Thomas signing off for now. Well, thank you, Thomas, for the uh, audio feedback. And um, first of all, one of the things you said, I think a lot of people make the um, improper uh, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly assumption, what, assumption or whatever that fly by wire uh, doesn't necessarily. I think a lot of people equate fly by wire with Airbus side stick controller. That is a non-active side stick controller. Um, but Boeing makes uh, airplanes, the 787, the 777 uh, that are fly by wire systems, but they use conventional yokes conventional controls uh, the, as far as the throttles actually thr throttle throttle levers throttle whatever moving and the control yokes moving uh, reflecting what is happening with the control surfaces um, so you can't just say fly by wire and then mean a side stick controller that's not moving so just wanted to make sure that i clarify that um, but um, you know, his, his point, Nick, I guess, about the, one of the inherent uh, downsides of the non-active or what do you say, non-sympathetic non uh, yeah. type of a, a side stick controller is the awareness, uh, potentially the awareness of other crew members as far as what inputs are being made by the other pilot. Um, so and I think that, you know, that that has been has been addressed and there are some companies out there and some airplanes now that are are installing or uh, m making sure that they have the that type of technology an active side stick i think there's another term for it that i can't recall but uh, that actually uh, 
does give feedback to the pilot uh, when they're when they're applying forces on the stick, and it also is uh, moving uh, the uh, opposite uh, joystick. And uh, so, I mean, there there the technology is there for that. I think BF Goodrich is one of the companies that is um, is making that kind of a uh, kind of a cult control stick. Uh, side stick controller, but I think they're very expensive. And I don't really think that anything that has made, been made by Airbus up to this point is going to, they're not going to go back in and, you know, replace the uh, non-active side stick controllers with active ones because it would just be you know, prohibitively uh, expensive. Uh, Nick, what is your take? Um, thing is, uh, we, we uh, in my uh, outfit, we're not training guys very much. I'm certainly not. Um I don't feel the need to see what the other pilot on the flight deck's doing with his controls because he's usually got several thousand hours. He's got a license. He can fly the airplane, and I trust him. And I can see what the airplane is doing, so I have a pretty damn good idea what he's doing with his controls. So I look out, see what the aircraft is doing, and if I'm ever in, in concern that he's not doing the right thing with the controls, I will take control because the aircraft is obviously not going in the right direction. It's not behaving as I would expect it to at the time. So personally, I don't see that as a disadvantage at all. I think I was, if I was in the training environment, I would prefer to have feedback on the flight controls um, so that I can see how much flare, for example, the guy's putting in physically, whether he's pulling it back enough or not. Um, but, Heaven's sake, we're an airliner. They're not hard to fly. Um, I really don't see a problem. When you're in an emergency situation, if the captain is ever in doubt that the right thing isn't being done, he can always take control. After all, he's the senior pilot, the most experienced, and he's the one carrying the can anyway. So that would always be a situation the first officer would understand. Uh, if he was initially pilot flying, you had a an emergency that was difficult to handle. I don't think many uh, first officers would be particularly surprised if the captain said, I have control and flew the airplane, uh, regardless of how well it was being flown by the guy beside them. Um, just to correct one thing, the uh, Airbuses do have a moving trim wheel, so you can see the trim wheel move, uh, just like you might on a Boeing. Uh, and I did ask um, a Boeing colleague of mine, um, I don't know if you remember, Ian Black. I did interview him for Pain Tales a while back. He's on the 787. I said, uh, quick question, Ian, with the autopilot engaged on the 78, does the big thing between your legs move? And he replied, <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a question. <laughs> Family show. Family show. Wow. He replied, sadly, yes. Not much in pitch, but seriously annoying when you're having a big turn. Uh, sorry, when you're doing a big turn and you're eating your dinner. Uh, and uh, we had a bit of banter. And then uh, I asked him what his general opinion was. And he says, and this is a direct quote. I find everything about the 787 a pain in the ass. Um, so not everyone is is content with having uh, that system. Uh, some people prefer the convenience of having a much smaller set of uh, controls for the aircraft to one side and not sticking up in the middle in a very old-fashioned way and one that was really designed for an aircraft that had steel cables going up the full length of fuselage uh, rather than a computer flying hydraulic 
non-reversible controls. Um, so the short answer is, I don't care. The uh, better answer is, I don't care because I'm not training. If I was training, I think I would really like to have uh, feedback on the stick. Uh, if ever I'm concerned on the line, I just press the red button and take control. Uh, and the only reason I press the red button is because otherwise you get lots of things squawking at you saying, deal input, deal input. And because um, you don't necessarily get the effect out of the controls you want. Um, was there anything? Oh, yeah, your photography. He, he's a lovely photographer, isn't he? He's got some great pictures. One I like the best is I think it's a P3 Orion, uh, and he's fisheye lens. The whole world is curved, beautiful sky, very dramatic picture. That is gorgeous. Love that. So yes, great yeah. job on the photography. Beautiful <laughs> photography. And, you know, just to add on what Nick was uh, talking about, and, and, of course, the captain has priority as far as the control stick, as you as you were talking about, the red button. Um, I The only aircraft that I've ever flown that has uh, – um, fly-by-wire is the RJ, which is, wasn't mentioned. The Canary Air RJ, I know the ERJ as well, is a fly-by-wire. The new CS, I'm sure, is a fly-by-wire. Um, all of these, are, you know, the, the, the ERJ and the CRJ both have control wheels in front. Um, and on the uh, new CS, it's going to be a, a side stick. So I don't know about the CS as far as input and, and being able to feel, but I do remember extending uh, um, distinctively that on the flight control page you can see what the flight control positions are in other words if the ailerons are rolling the elevator is pitching i don't know if that's the same on the uh, on the airbus nick but that would be a question you know i'd have to ask you on your flight control page if you happen to have it displayed would it show the ailerons and elevators and positions Absolutely, they do. They yeah. show exactly how much they've moved, uh, so. where the limits are. And so when we do our flight control checks before takeoff, that page automatically comes up, and we can see all the flight controls and spoilers deflect. Uh, we can see whether they're being moved to the correct position and how far they're being moved. And, and, you, and you said the most important thing when, when the feedback was coming across, uh, Jeff and I were sitting here talking, and I said, well, I really don't care what the position of the stick is, to be honest with you, because I'm not really not looking at the stick. I'm looking at my instruments and, of course, more, more importantly, the artificial horizon and my, de my uh, um, ND navigation display to see what, you know, is the aircraft doing what I want it to do? I'm not looking at what the position of the control, uh, you know, positions are. So, you know, just like what you were saying, Nick, if if the aircraft's not doing what it should be doing, uh, somebody ought to be making it do it. Fix it. Make Fix it happen. It. So, yeah. um, and then, you know, uh, Jeff brought up, well, you get the Air France situation. Nobody, you know, nobody, you know, the instrumentation wasn't giving the uh, proper um indications well you know we as a result uh, i don't know i can't speak for other airlines however we uh, have certain training protocols and memory action items now that you know if if we were to lose our primary instruments we can go to a certain pitch and power setting to give us uh, certain parameters and airspeed and altitude that you know that we are known factors so uh, and what's very important to say about that air france 447 thing and it's not stated enough is the tens to hundreds of times that that same exact type of situation had occurred in the past, but because the crew members were properly trained and knew something about the fundamentals of flying an airplane, they didn't get into that same position and kill hundreds of people. True. Right. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, 
with any accident, always we talk about the Swiss cheese models yeah. and that was just everything lining up at the right time for a bad outcome on that day. But I think to get to the bottom of, of all of this is that there's some sort of inherent feeling now, especially after Air France 447, that uh, if you don't have that feedback of what the other person is doing with their control inputs, then perhaps that's inherently unsafe somehow. And I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think there's any inherently unsafe uh, feature of, of either design approach. Um, now, perhaps in that particular situation to overcome the incompetence of well, pilot flying, that, perhaps it would have helped. But yeah, yeah, but I don't think it's inherent to the way the, no. the systems are designed. That was other factors contributing on top of it. But in the normal assumed situation where you have well-trained, competent crew and everything else working appropriately where all of those Swiss cheese holes don't line up, it's it's perfectly fine. Yeah, It's not inherently unsafe. You know, we can tie this into an early question about the, uh, uh, you know, discount or not so regulated uh, the airlines are being afraid to fly on. I, I, I don't, I don't care you know whether it's mainline or or a a non non regulated they're all regulated but not you know you know a much smaller charter type carrier you know this air france unfortunately is a perfect example you can you can buy the best airline in the world and we're all subject to possibly making an error and uh, you know we all strive to to fly the airplane as safely as possible, and you know whether you have sides to control, you know yoke in front of you, feedback, no feedback. It really comes down to the training and the individual aptitude, and you only hope that you have the best people in the front of the aircraft, and also training the people and maintaining the aircraft. And you know I I can I can say this that. You know, untold millions and millions and millions of hours that aircraft are in the sky, uh, year after year after year after year, and so few incidents happen every year, uh, is 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 a testament that, you know, we're all very professional, and for the most part, we do an excellent job uh, with a very dangerous thing flying airplanes. So, um, that's just my answer to that. All right. Well, I think we beat the dead horse. Yeah. All right. And then just quickly, one more piece of audio feedback before we end today's show. I think it's important that we play this, and then we'll uh, we'll top it off at the at the end. Hello, APG community. It's Connie from California, leaving my first real feedback. You may have heard me a couple of times on recordings from meetups in the last year, most recently from Captain Nick's visit to San Francisco. As a follow-up to that episode, I just got back from Reno, where I attended the 29th Annual Women in Aviation International Conference, and let me tell you about the fun that I had. It was my first time attending the yearly conference. I had been to a regional one in Seattle, where we met up at the Museum of Flight and toured Boeing facilities, avionics companies, and the Alaska Airlines headquarters. The ladies there told me I just had to go to the big annual one, so when I saw that it was going to be just over in Reno, I figured I couldn't pass up the opportunity. So the organization is open to anyone in military, commercial, or general aviation, but also to enthusiasts like myself. It was a wonderful chance to meet people from around the world in all aspects of the field. I personally chatted with pilots and students from Germany, South Africa, and Pakistan, as well as plenty from the United States. 
The speakers were accomplished and inspiring. The featured guest was Janine Shepard, a former cross-country skier who overcame a life-threatening accident while training for the Olympics by getting her pilot's license and eventually becoming an aerobatics instructor. They had a series of educational sessions on various aviation-related topics, awards and scholarships were given out, and the exhibit hall had over 150 booths representing different airlines, manufacturers, schools, clubs, and more. There are various chapters around the country and around the world, so if you are a woman in aviation or if you support their growing representation in the field, I would suggest going to WAI.org and becoming a member. One of the reasons I chose to get involved was because I was shocked when I saw that women still only make up about 26% of air traffic controllers, 17% of dispatchers, 5% of airline pilots, and 2% of mechanics. In this day and age, how can the disparity still be so large? Uh, My question to the APG crew, especially our uh, seasoned captains, Nick and Jeff, is how do you see your workplace climate in relation to women and how has that changed or not changed over the years? I would also love to hear feedback from any female aviation professionals listening to the show with their perspective on the issue. It makes me happy when I hear a female captain over the PA on my flights, by the way. I always try to give a smile and thumbs up to you for representing. Again, I am currently just an enthusiastic fan of aviation, finding this passion only somewhat recently, though I may join these awesome ladies and take it to the next level at some point. I'll keep you posted. Thanks for a fun and informative show. Well, thank you, Connie. It's great to hear feedback from you. I've met Connie a few times at uh, various meetups out in uh, Northern California, and uh, that's awesome. Thanks for it. And, and I'm hoping that that will be the only the first time that we hear feedback from you. Um, I'll start by saying... You know, women in aviation, uh, my my personal feeling is they don't belong in aviation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'll <I've>, leave now. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Get out of here. Um, I've flown, and I've, I've said this uh, several times in the, in, in the several years I've been doing the show. I have flown with uh, male pilots and female pilots, obviously mostly male pilots because of the uh, just the way everything has worked over the years. Um, but uh, it's the same and and again, the same thing with military versus civilian pilots. I fly with people that are mostly average, you know, the old, uh, what, bell curve. Uh, there are some that are eh, maybe not quite so there, you know, like Dana. And like then, me. Yeah, I'm just kidding. No, that's not true. And then others that are maybe on the on the, uh, the right side, the steep side of the... Uh, of the uh, bell curve that are that are above average and some that are just awesome. Um, and guess what? It doesn't matter. I mean, that same distribution of that is the same whether you compare all the women pilots in the in the in the aviation piloting career, uh, all the military pilots, all the civilian pilots. In my opinion, this is my experience only. I'm not gonna. I'm not talking for Captain Nick or anybody else, but it's just like you can almost state that the the percentage of the the not so good or I'm not even saying not so good maybe below average average above average is about the same regardless of the group and uh, so I've flown with some really awesome aviators that just happen to be female in the Air Force and I've flown with uh, them in the uh, civilian world as well and so to me you know, if you've made it, especially in the airlines, well, even in the military, if you've made it through pilot training and you're a rated pilot, uh, you're good. You know, you've done what it takes to get to, to fly an airplane in the military. You have wings. That's no no easy task. Same thing in the civilian world. If you have done everything you need to do, passed all the check rides and gotten hired by um, a minor or major airline, you've done what it takes to, to, to be there and uh, represent 
And uh, so for me, yeah, no difference. It just, uh, we just have different body parts. That's, and I should also eloquently add, put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Not really. Um, and also, I should add that uh, recently uh, I've noticed a huge difference in the last, I'd say, what, five years at Acme. I mean, it used to be a, a rarity when you'd walk into the pilot lounge in Atlanta and see um, a, a female pilot. I mean, you just, they, we had a very low percentage. And now when I walk in, I know it's not quite 50-50, but it, there are a heck of a lot more female pilots in all the pilot lounges and walking around the airports and everything else. And in listening to uh, pilots communicating on the radios, a very much, much higher. Now, you know, again, it's, it's not a parody. It's not 50-50, but it is considerably more than it was when I started my career almost 30 years ago in the airlines. And I'm, and I think that that gap is continuing to close. So, um, that's pretty much all I have to say. I think Nick might want to uh, add or say something. No, else. I agree 100% in almost every respect. Uh, we're an equal opportunities employer in Acme Red, uh, and we have, uh, a good, um, proportion of pilots from all backgrounds, all races, all religions, and both sexes. I yep. was going to say all sexes, but really, I would guess there's more than two-ish, but no. Anyone who wants to be anything in their own life, that's fine. If you can fly an airplane, you can also join our airline. There you go. And just to add in a few things, if the sound of my neighbor cutting through something with a saw or so I don't know what they're doing up there. It's exceptionally loud. I hope you can't hear it. No, because we don't hear it. Freddy? Is I don't know Freddy what they're doing. Oh, no, the Freddy Krueger? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is he wearing a, a hockey <laughs> mask? A hockey mask. Saw. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Anyway, um, first of all, Connie, I'm so jealous that you went to the Women in Aviation Conference. I saw nothing but lots of amazing posts about it over the past week or so. I had quite a few friends that were there as well. Um, and I definitely need to make it to that conference at some point because it just sounds like a really great time, great event, lots of networking opportunities and lots of good speakers. So definitely a little jealous of that. Um, there was something else I was going to add to that too. And I'm so distracted by what's going on outside the window right now. <laughs> Look out, Steph, there's a guy behind you with a chainsaw. <laughs> um, you know, I think just adding on a little bit to what Jeff said, um, I think just with pilot shortage going on and the amount of hiring that's going on, uh, especially at the regional level right now. I think that uh, percentage of women uh, who are airline pilots is going to be increasing rapidly because I know just from what I see on social media and from friends and contacts that there are a whole lot more women getting into aviation in this day and age than I think there were in the past. So I think that percentage is going to change significantly in the future. I don't know that it will ever be a 50-50 scenario, but I, you know, I think for the most part, the women I know who are airline pilots, um, just coming from the other perspective of things, are very happy with the careers that they've chosen. Um, I think that they're, by and large, treated equally and expected to perform their jobs on the same level as any other colleague of theirs, male or female. So, yeah. That's right. You know, your your sex or your gender does not give you any advantage or disadvantage. It should be the same opportunity that anybody has regardless of gender. You know, the only thing I was going to say is, Jeff, if I had a female pilot 
she probably smells a lot better than you do. I'm sure of it. But no, in in all honesty, <laughs> in all honesty, I mean, I agree with everybody on the panel. It. It's equal opportunity. If you're qualified to fly an airplane, it shouldn't be based on what equipment you have in in in, in the trunks. I mean, it's 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 bottom line. Yeah, I don't want to see what you, <laughs> yeah, family it, show. It, it, it yeah. it's 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 uh, good to see. Uh, qualified people coming through. It doesn't matter to me, you know, what where they came from, whether they're, you know, American, uh, African, whatever you call, uh, whether they're female, male, it, it doesn't matter to me. I just want qualified people in the flight deck that I know that I can trust to do the job. And uh, ultimately, that's all that really matters to me. Um, equal opportunity for everybody. That's, that's what I want to see. And uh, I think it's a fantastic career for anybody that wants to put forth the effort to become a pilot. And I, I got to tell you, though, with my name, a lot of guys have been disappointed through the years because they expect the blonde or brunette. And not just because and, of your name. And, you know, <laughs> size two waist and, you know, whatever. Uh, it's going to show up. And then this yeah. big, burly, hairy guy shows up. So, <laughs> Dana. So, yeah, it's I, I've, I've gotten a lot of comments through the years. And, and you know, I encourage anybody. It does I, As I said, it does not matter uh, what gender you are or your race or whatever. Uh, I've I've encourage several of my friends and and jeff and i were actually talking about uh my buddy tony uh and the fact that i just talked about him being my buddy tony and he had no clue that he was an african-american because i don't see uh gender and or tony race. doesn't know that he's an african-american he well, he does but, oh he does okay uh, we could say a few jokes there but we won't talk about ron jeremy anyways um yeah so huh? it, 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 I, that's that's the way i view it it's it's people don't look at me like that. He's saying cuckoo, you know, whatever. <laughs> hey, Kanye, we, say, we weren't say this following your, your logic there, but okay, I'm sure. Well, I'll, I'll yeah. just say, I'll just leave this in, in closing a little bit for Connie. Um, you know, she mentioned maybe joining our ranks, and I would definitely encourage you to do that if you are thinking about it at all, because it sounds like you've definitely got the aviation bug, and there's nothing like actually getting out there and experiencing that uh, ability to fly an aircraft for yourself. So. And and what I've and what I've said all along, we talked about it earlier. Do it. Don't don't live with regrets. If you have the bug, you have any inkling to do it, and you have the ability to do it, or have a way of of getting or 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 receiving the ability to do it, i.e., money. Just go do it because you don't want to go live live and be in some nursing home and age of 85 years old saying, man, I really wish I did because, you know, there's nothing worse than living with a Take a chance, take a chance, take a chance, go for it. Let's do this. Let's say um, we're going to put a couple of the pieces of feedback in the folder from Simon uh, and from uh, Texas Charlie. They'll be uh, moved over to the next show's uh, feedback folder. And if you want to uh, send us feedback, you can do that by heading over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website where you'll find uh, ways to communicate with us, learn about the crew, the community, uh, and so much more. Again, that's AirlinePilotGuy.com. We have apps for iPhone and Android, and uh, we also have social media, and Steph can tell us about that social media join us on twitter we're at apg crew we will all have access to that and interact with you there or if you like facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy um, lots of community members there sharing all kinds of different links and stories about aviation and just generally interacting and getting to know one another so 
Absolutely. And let us not forget about what are we pointing out? Oh, help see Hillel walking through the door. I think he's going to tell us about another quasi-social media thing. Uh, you can join our Slack group. And Hillel, take it away. Tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Hillel. Good seeing you again. <laughs> We wanted to uh, mention our producer, uh, Liz. She does a lot of work during the week and behind the scenes. And uh, again, just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that. And we appreciate her. And it's really helped me uh, taking uh, a big load off of my shoulders. A lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. So thank you, Liz Piper, our producer at the APG. And thank you, Liz. Thank you, Liz. Hey, Liz. Thank you. Until next time. Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, brody. Bye.